everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Rapping with Reef Bum. I'm your host, Keith Berkelhammer. And in the house tonight, we have Chris Meckley from ACI Aquaculture. Chris, man, welcome to the show. How you doing, Keith? Yeah, Thanks yeah, yeah. So Chris is uh, direct from Plant City, Florida. And uh, for those of you that don't know, ACI is a wholesaler of aquaculture, coral, wild coral, Saltwater fish, inverts, and I guess you guys even have dry goods, right? We do have the dry goods, and actually we have to take the saltwater fish out because, well, okay, I guess we do sell some saltwater. We just sell tank gray stuff. We don't do any importing anymore of the, of the fish. Um, a lot of reasons, and we can get into that down the road here in this Yeah, yeah, chat. yeah. So everybody, listen, thanks for uh, joining the live stream. I was just, um, Chris and I were just talking before. I've been doing this almost for a year now. This this show started back in April of 2020. I'm having a lot of fun with it, and and I thank you folks for uh, for coming in and, and tuning in and supporting the show and I see Star City Reef is there and Braveheart Reef for 525. Great Bearded Reef, Paul, thanks for joining again. TFP, JR, Chris Tate, Guy Host, Algae Warrior. Uh, who else we got? Uh, oh, I think we got your wife on there too, uh, Chris. Oh, yeah, she's on. <laughs> she was she was excited about it. She said um, she was heading out to uh, Outback, so she wouldn't interrupt and just yeah, yeah, watch yeah. the stream. So um, I want to thank our moderator tonight, Ginger B Coaching. So we, uh, we appreciate you uh, helping us out tonight. So, so Chris, just, uh, I got a whole boatload of questions for you and I, I'm, I'm, I got a nice, uh, cold beverage right here and I, I think you, uh, you've got the same. So I'm, I'm stoked to just talk sure. reef man and, and, uh, yeah, you know, we'll, we'll have a nice conversation and hopefully folks will interject with a lot of questions from the, uh, from the audience. But, um, you know, like I typically do, I always like to kind of ask my guests how they got started in the hobby or, or the business. So, Chris, dude, what's your story there with ACI? Oh, well, I mean, it goes way back to when I was a kid. I mean, I, I always enjoyed water, anything to do with water. You know, I did have to go fishing, um, had uh, freshwater aquariums at my house, uh, Growing up, my mom and dad wouldn't let me have a saltwater aquarium because my dad tried it when he was younger. And of course, that was back in the, you know, 60s, 70s. And uh, he said, you're not wasting your money on that. They don't live. And, uh, you know, so he, he, I did the next best thing. I used to breed a lot of African cichlids and discus, angelfish. Um, and then as I got older, I was about 21 when I met my wife, Amanda. She, uh, I work in, work, was working at a fish store um, and she was setting up her first saltwater aquarium. And, uh, I helped her get going there and things kind of escalated from there with her and I, and then, uh, it was really weird. We had our first, uh, I had my first reef tank. That, uh, t the one that I was actually physically allowed to have was, uh, 20, 25, 26 years ago. Um, uh, but it was in the industry and, uh, the retail side of it for a few years, you know, many years before that, actually. Um, then we kind of moved to Florida to pursue new things, uh, to get out of the kind of rut that, you know, the life was, uh, that we had up there. We wanted to change. And, um, when I moved down here, I worked for one of the largest tropical fish farms in the country. Um, actually they developed, uh, with a company called Yorktown, the, uh, Glowfish. Oh, yeah. Um, I pretty much installed their entire facility of the local facility that they was what they called it it was a 120 foot greenhouse type deal with uh, over 500 aquariums in they 
brought me on board and I installed all of that for them. And they were happy with that. And I ran that facility for two and a half years and then went into sales. And honestly, I'm not one to sit on my butt. I cannot sit still. <laughs> and um, I got, <laughs> it was really hard for me um, to do sales. Um, I can, you know, I'm, I'm e it's easy for me to do, but I don't like making those phone calls. I don't like being pushy. I like people making decisions. And, you know, that was one of the things that uh, I said that I was going to do when ACI started um, was I was never going to be that pushy guy, never going to be that guy that calls, you know, three, four times a week about getting an order from somebody. Um, before I got started ACI, though, I did have, end up having my own um, saltwater store down in Tampa. Um, won't go into too much about that. That was only about a year and a half of having that shop, and I got out of it. And then I really didn't know what I was going to do with my life. And um, I borrowed ten grand from Discover Card and put in a three hundred and fifty gallon coral system in my garage. And uh, I, from the shop, I knew uh, Walt and Debbie Smith. Cause I used to buy a lot of stuff from them. And uh, so I started buying Acroporas in the box lots that they had. This is uh, what, 2007. Wow. And yeah, we, we, uh, we escalated from there. I mean, it was uh, my first batch of corals was 30 Acros from Walt Smith. And um, I kept them for about a week. Then I fragged them up. Uh, I think we ended up with 1500 frags to wow. start the company. And yeah, we launched uh May 23rd, 2007. So we're coming up on 14 cool. years. And uh, yeah, it's uh, it, the whole reason I started ACI was, you know, I was uh, I wasn't the breadwinner in the family. My wife was she uh, had her accounting degree and she did all her. Uh, she had a really good job. And I was I always felt inferior. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to do better because I'm the man of the house. I wanted to make sure that I took care of the family. And um, it was hard for me. Uh, I, I'm so happy that she was able to do what she did until ACI got going. Um, and now I'm just happy that she's a big part of the company as well. But so uh, the reason I started it was because I was just a hobbyist at that point. And, you know, I remember when uh, farmed frags were coming available, at, like this little one half yeah. inch or one inch frags that were a hundred bucks. And I'm like, how am I yeah. supposed to afford that? I <laughs> and I said, you know what? I think I can do this better. And as a matter of fact, we haven't changed our Acropora frag price since we started this company. And um, they're still the same price. Of course, you know, we get, we do pay more for the corals and, you know, um, there's a lot of stuff that we um, do have to charge more for on the premium side of the Acroporas. But when we have a bunch of Acros come in and we can make fragments of them and I call them chop shops, people frown upon that but you know it's a fact it's real it's true it's not yeah. sugarcoating anything it's a wild coral chopped up into pieces and healed on a frag plug and holding its color and uh so that's kind of how we started in the garage 1500 frags and we just kept going and going and going i mean we uh i, I used to take my daughter for rides across the state to just deliver corals to potential customers. We just bag up, you know, I'd bag up like four or 500 frags and just drive across the state and stop at shops all the way down 95. And I picked up a lot of business that way. So you were kind of like um, cold calling LFSs. Wow. Much. Right, well, that's sales, dude. <laughs> you know, I mean, you're, uh, you were selling there. Yeah. You know, I mean, I was, like I said, I could, I could never stand getting on the phone and calling, calling people. That's why we started doing the, just driving around with pre-bagged corals and, you know, offering them to customers 
our potential customers. And we picked up, we still have some of those customers still buy from us today, um, which is really cool because um, they've seen us grow from just selling a bunch of Acropora frags that were healed and then going into LPS corals, then going into importing and, and just been a really really fun so ride how many uh, un, and before i ask this question i, I saw um great bearded reef say yeah folks if, if you're digging what you're watching right now hit that like button because then more people got to actually um find this uh, live stream and more people will be tuning in so if you're if you're liking this then uh, hit that thumbs up like button for us please um so how many yes. frags do you think you have in the facility now oh gosh um I think my just my main farm system. There's, oh Keith, you're putting me on the spot here. I mean, I'm probably we're looking at. <laughs> I, I would bet you there's at least ninety to a hundred thousand. Wow, plus. wow. And I, I could wow. be way off on that. I mean, I might wow. be high. I don't think I'm high though. I mean, when it comes down to the number of frags, I mean, when it, when it, when you break it down, sellable frags versus farmed what we call mother frags um is because you know they're also considered frags to me um even if it's our you know we don't have big mother colonies that we take our fragments off of unless it's an acropora like our our lps corals we have just one inch frag plugs that we wait to encrust and then we break them down so that we can encrust them onto a sellable frag and it takes up a lot less space and actually we get a lot more growth and out of the corals that way because you have a one inch frag plug with a little dot on it and all that space to grow versus a big colony, it's growing up and out, but you don't get as much out of the coral the way we've learned and uh, started to manipulate growth on the corals themselves. So um, Chris was um, actually your wife, Amanda, was so kind to mm -hmm. to shoot some video of, I guess, one of your tanks. And and I said to you guys before. That was two of them. And I said to the, I said to you guys before Thanks. the uh, the show, my jaw was like hitting the ground. I mean, I was drooling in terms of what I was looking at. So um, we're gonna play that. I don't know at what point. Um, maybe I should start playing it now. You can kind of like just start talking more about the uh, facility and and um, what's in the. All right, sure. I'm gonna start rolling this. Um, and then we're gonna uh, yeah. So this is this will come up in about 15, 20 seconds. Um, I mean, from what I'm. I'm not sure where. Go ahead. All I'm seeing is racks and racks of corals and predominantly Acropora coral with a lot of, with a lot of tangs my, in there. And yeah, this, this, um, this is, uh, the backside of a 12 foot by six foot tank. Um, on the walls we have our, um, this, those are actually, I think Nirvana's. And this was a year ago, this video was. So these Nirvanas actually have grown up. They're actually growing out of the water right now. Um, I was looking a couple of, like three, four weeks ago, and I couldn't believe I could see the, the corals themselves actually out, out of the water, but the polyp under the water. So the stem was <laughs> up above the water line. Um, and that's probably because of the water line changing because we've adjusted um, the, uh, the drains and they just continue to continue to continue to grow, um, but we have in that tank. Uh, this is the other side. So the, it was two two the two main farm tanks. They're both twelve foot by six foot, thousand gallons each. Um, the acros we have elevated above where the LPS normally are, and um, 
we have, what do we have in there? We have a closed loop at 6,500 gallons an hour, the return pump 6,500 an hour. Then we have, this is, these are kind of older models, but the gyrie, is it the 380s yeah. or the 280s? The biggest ones they have, there's five of them in there, plus octo pulse fours um, for flow. Sinclair had figured out there's like 35 or 40,000 gallons an hour of water movement in that, in each one of those tanks. We have a lot of tangs in there, as you can see, because, of course, we need the tangs to take care of and, and help uh, keep any nuisance algae under control, even though our um, algae turf scrubbers have pretty much helped us more than I could ever imagine that they would have. The tangs are just great to see swimming in schools and um, eight yellow tangs in there. Uh, I think there's five purple tangs. The uh, orange shoulder tang that's in there, that thing was an adult, well, adult size. It was like eight inches. And we did a huge, massive water change on the system in, from 2019. And then three days later, it full-blown male adult colors popped into it. It was like, I looked at it one day, it was yellow. The next day, full-blown awesome. colors. I was like, wow, that's just amazing. And I think it had a lot to do with um, the big water change, replenished a lot of the traces. And, and that could be part of what it was. It's hard to say, but um, whatever that water change did, it finally made that fish change over to its adult colors after all the years being yellow. It's pretty cool. But uh, all these frags here, like right here, you're seeing, um, this is, uh, I think this is the Marvin the Martian, and then you have PC Rainbow. Yeah. But we take our mother colonies and we break down the fragments and we stick them onto a plug. I will not sell a freshly cut coral. Um, it's against everything I believe. And these corals will sit um, on those frag plugs it used to be about an eight-week period from the time they were fragged until we could actually – I was satisfied with the, the puddling on the plug or the growth on the plug to actually sell them. And with a lot of the things we've been doing, experimenting with the chemistry of the aquariums, um, we've cut that down to like five and a half weeks. And it just blows my mind all the things I thought I used to know about reefing and just changing a handful of things um, and chasing different parameters versus the normal parameters that everybody usually chases change the whole entire um, growth of all of the corals in the entire system. There's a lot of things that have changed with that. Um, this her sonai right there, that's like my nemesis coral. I love. Did you see that? Uh, the yeah, big yeah, tile. Yeah. With the little yeah. squiggly branches on it, that's an Acroporus really? hersonoi, and yes, I've had that coral for five years. It's grown out, and it's just been a plague. With it's a it's the magnet for all parasites ever, huh. and we finally got that thing growing, and it's on four four inch tiles now. Really excited about that. Here's my Ghani farm. This is just a uh, uh, some red Ghani that we farmed out. That we uh, we we put them on three quarter inch plugs, and then we grow them out, and then we cut them into fours. And then we keep the Gorgeous. exact amount of mother frags that we had there and whatever's left over then we have available in the market. So it's not something we have on the market all the time, but that also keeps it interesting for everybody. People are always going, when are you going to have Red Ghani back? When are you going to have Red Ghani back? And in time, we'll have it back. Probably mid-summer time, we should have, you know, four or 500 frags Jeez. that we can actually sell from the 160 Jeez. that we grow out. Yeah. So there... There, there's a question, awesome. uh, uh, Chris, uh, from Star City Reef. What do you feed the corals? What uh, Any coral food specifically? Oh, my gosh. We, uh, we feed a smorgasbord. I mean, um, you know, for years and years and years, I use nothing but reefroids and calanus. And, of course, I always like to put in um, uh, uh, phytoplankton 
as well as um, the uh, we use brine shrimp for the bigger bigger corals can can use that. We also still we still use um, uh, the uh, reefroids, um, not as much as we used to. We're more steering towards uh, a new product that a friend of mine developed. Um, it's a company called Captivate Aquaculture. Um, he's a marine scientist, and he developed uh, this food, and it is amazing the response that you get from the corals i mean the polyp lab stuff always i thought always gave we got a good feeding response from the corals this the feeding response is just 10 times what i used to see and um it's it seems to me like the corals as soon as we started feeding this this was back in september when my friend launched his business um within that period of time i've noticed corals getting fluffier per se blowing up like i mean just pulling much more more water in and not being so tight like especially favias and favites i mean i've got a favia right now that most people if they saw it they'd think it was a colostria Mm. because it looks like big trumpet heads sticking off of it but um we also just started a new food called it's decapsulated brine shrimp eggs and that's not cheap it's not something i think most people can actually do brine shrimp eggs are you know by the pound um they're quite expensive um i have luck i'm lucky that i have a local aquaculture facility here that um um grows phytoplankton zooxanthellae copepods rotifers and she decapsulate brine shrimp eggs and keeps them in a really heavy brine solution and i feed 32 ounces to each tank mm. every other day um, just broadcasting it. And then, of course, if they don't uh, get eaten, they hatch. That's live food for the fish, for the mandarins, for all the different stuff that's in there. The only thing that's bad about broadcasting all of that is Aptasia's. Just love you for doing that. And uh, it's uh, something I hope that in the very near future with the new farm build out, we'll be able to keep Aptasia's completely out of our systems. But Yeah, how, uh, do, you, how, do, you mani- how do you manage we'll Aptasia at this point? Oh my gosh! I got a guy that goes around with Abtasia away. Oh really? Some- oh wow! That's got to be tough. <laughs> oh, yeah. Frag racks and stuff like that. And um, a couple of other it's questions uh, popping into my head, and I think in terms of what I'm seeing in the chat, what are your nutrients at? Uh, well, the nutrients um, we struggle with nutrients. Um, I actually have uh, very large protein skimmers. Um, they're rated for the system size. But I have them, they're uh, Reef Octopus EXT 9000 or 9000 EXTs. There's two Bubble Blaster 10,000s on each of those. And we run about 2,500 gallons an hour through the skimmer. And I actually turned off one of the Bubble Blasters. I rotate one week, I'll run one. The next week, I'll run the other one. Because if I don't, I, I zero out on my, uh, oh, wow. on my nitrates. And yeah, I mean, as much food as we put in there, we used to feed... And I think it's still the same with all the food that we add. It's about five pounds worth of like reef roids slash captivate aquaculture integrate every three months. And that's a lot. 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 You know, I've seen a two and a a two and a half gallon bucket packed full of that stuff gets fed into the system uh, every three months. I mean, it's a lot of food. So so what what are your like, uh, what are your target nitrates (laughs) and phosphates? What do you, what do you, what do you shoot for? I really would like my nitrates to be around six to 10 and my phosphates to be around 0.03. Um, our nitrates have been right around two and our 
phosphates have always been an issue. And that was the reason why we went with the uh, turf scrubbers because they really, I don't like adding chemicals. Yeah. Okay. There's a lot of ways you can, you can, you can tackle your issues in your aquarium. And if you don't do them naturally, you got to take in consideration the consequences of the chemicals you're adding to your aquarium. You know, in time, lanthanum builds up in your system. And I used to use lanthanum chloride like it was, you know, dosing alkalinity mm. buffer. I mean, I used so much lanthanum chloride. Um, I remember I actually, I ran out of lanthanum chloride and nobody I could find could get it for me in the volume that I needed it. So I called Julian up one day. And I'm like, Julian, I'm like, you got to do something for me. And I, I need it as soon as you can do it. I said, I need lanthanum chloride concentrate so that I can mix up, you know, so I can, you know, keep my phosphates under control. Well, not even a week later, Julian's like, hey, I got this stuff for you. It's in gallons, but you just mix up some RO water with it and it dilutes it and then just follow the instructions. Perfect. It still was not solving my, this was two and a half years ago, my algae issues that we were having because the nutrients were high. Uh, it was mainly the phosphates were up around the 1.5 oh, yeah. mark. And now I've been happy with them being around 0.3. And people are like, oh my gosh, you're nuts. The corals look amazing. They're growing like crazy. My scrubber's doing its job. My nitrates are low. I don't have any crazy nuisance algaes all over the place. The tangs help take care of it. Is my is my goal to get them lower? Yes. Um, it's just I'm letting it happen naturally. I'm not going to start adding a bunch of chemicals to reduce that. And one of the things that we're doing to help with nutrient export is by making sure that our trace elements are where they should be because a lot of people don't know this but if you use a refugium or a turf scrubber or even a chato reactor or anything like that with macroalgae in it macroalgae are uptaking a lot of the minor trace elements like molybdenum and selenium and manganese cobalt all that's being uptaken and copper of all things people are like you put copper in your aquarium yes i put copper in my aquarium you're supposed to it's supposed to be in seawater and to balance out your system ionically, you should have everything that's found in seawater in it. So that's our ultimate goal is to balance the system out. How it, how long that's going to take, I don't know. But there's so many things that we're doing that are helping that that out. Um, so with the traces being low, your scrubber is going to grow or your refusion is going to grow. But you're not removing the phosphates like you should be because – the algae that's growing isn't the algae that is necessary for phosphate removal for say it is removing them, but it's not. Right. Targeted. So it's kind of like, it's kind of like By masking what you're getting with the test results, right? Because if you've got a whole bunch of problematic algae, that's the stuff that's sucking in a lot of the phosphates there. So a lot of times people are like, well, I got zero nitrates and I got zero phosphates, but I got an algae problem. What's, what's up? Well, something's feeding that algae and that's why you have an issue. Exactly. You know, I mean, and, and, and there's nothing wrong with um, kits that hobbyists can get. You know, hobbyist grade test kits, they're great. I mean, if we didn't have them, people wouldn't even have a clue as to what they have and for nutrient levels. But they are, again, just what I said, they're hobbyist grade. They're not lab grade equipment. And on our level with the farm, I want the best possible equipment I can use to test my nutrients, my um you know, for ICP or, or whatever we use. Um, and I swear by it. There's a lot of people I know that don't like this unit. It's called an IDIP. Um, never got anything more consistent with 
lab results as uh, I did with this. Um, it's called the IDIP. Um, it was developed for people for pools, so you could test chlorine in pools, so you could test the different levels in pools. But then they found out that it was actually it's a, it's a little handheld photometer. It's actually they have a marine kit that you can get. And um, it's an app that goes on your phone and you can actually record everything. Any maintenance guy, any guy that does services for customers, the iDip is so nice that you can keep all of – once you do the test, the app stores it under that customer name and you can email your results to your yeah. customer. And then you have it every week. You can see the trends in the aquarium. If you go once a week, you can see, okay, last week it was at this, this week we're at this. It just keeps things you know, kind of nice and neat um, and also – it's nice if you can send that off to your customer, you know, right from the, the piece of equipment to show them, here's what your results are of your testing this week. What, so what are you getting in um, terms of parameters from the, uh, from that iDip? Uh, with the iDip, we, um, well, what, this is, this is the reason why we started using the iDip. Um, for many years, I was uh -oh, always Jake's in the house. Look out. Uh, uh Oh, <laughs> what's up Jake? Um, I was always, um, into using the titration kits as like hobbyist kits and they were, they're reliable. They're, they're extremely reliable for consistency, but for accuracy, there is, they are inaccurate by, you know, depending on the kit. And if you don't know what they're inaccurate by, you know, the consistency is great, but if you're off by a point or by 0 0.08 or whatever you're off by, you're like, I found out that the kit that I was using for my alkalinity was off by exactly one point. It's a big and difference. I used to keep my alkaline. Oh, it's huge, especially when you're talking about keeping your alkalinity at like 8.3 to 8.6. I was actually running, reading at 8 7.3, 7.6 when I had it sent to a lab to test. And then I used the iDip, and the iDip was like almost exactly what the lab said. So that's when I started doing both tests. And consistently, every time I tested with the iDip, it was one point lower than the kit that I was using. So I stopped using the kits altogether. And then I tested for the magnesium and the calcium and found out that those kits were off, but they weren't horrible. They were off by, I think it was 50 points on calcium and uh, 100 points on, on magnesium. 100 points on magnesium is a pretty big deal. Um, so we stopped using all titration kits. We, we only keep them on hand in case we um, need to do a quick test. And then I just have to, when the guys tell me what the test is, I say, okay, add a point to that. <laughs> Um, or take a point away from that. Or, but we were having problems with uh, importing euphelias. Um, everybody loves euphelias, and, and they're such a hard-shipping coral, um, especially halfway around the world. People don't realize that going, from, going to L.A. is one thing, but coming to Miami is another thing. We're talking 24 to 36 hours to LA we're talking 48 to 60 hours mm. to Miami mm. in the box so we used to just call it hey it's it's from importing them they're stressed they never get a chance to recover well when I found that out we were when we were getting brown jelly on these uh, euphelias you know two three days after we would receive them and not all of them but certain ones that were in rough shape when they came in and when I found out that the kit that I was using was off by a point. I'm like, no, that's not the problem at all. It has nothing to do with the shipping. It has everything to do with the alkalinity. So when we boosted our alkalinity up to 8.3 to 8.6, according to the iDip, we never had that issue again with euphelias wow. with brown jelly. And that's when I learned a lot about brown jelly 
and I shared this information with my Australian supplier, with multiple colleagues in the industry, and people were realizing that there that alkalinity plays one of the biggest key roles into brown jelly in euphelias. And if you have an alkalinity that's above natural seawater, which is, um, you know, I hear people say it's seven. I hear people say it's 7.6. I hear people say it's eight. I say it's 7.6. I mean, that's what I was always known as the average of the world oceans is the alkalinity is about 7.6. So that's what I go by. And if my alkalinity is ever at 7.6, I'm actually starting to freak (laughs) out (laughs) because I don't want to go below there because I know what's going to happen. And, and. I've seen it firsthand in being a commercial facility. The last thing I want to do is to have a bunch of animals get shipped around the world and die on me because I was naive and didn't, or complacent per se, and didn't monitor my parameters. So, uh, Jake, man, thanks for that live chat. He is saying, let's get some hype in the chat for at Real Reef, Chris and Keith and uh, Star City Reef. Thank you for that super chat. Uh, I'll add some hype, Star City Reef says. And, uh, yeah, your wife, dude. Super chat there. Thank you very much. I like this guy, Keith. That's what she's uh, yep. saying there. So, um, <clears throat> and and folks, we've got uh, we got eighty folks watching right now. That that is awesome. But we've only got twenty nine likes. So if you guys are are, lo- are loving this live stream, hit that like button because more people will find it, and the more people that find it, yes, the more uh, interaction we'll have, and that'll just be awesome. So. Um, What's Jake saying? Natural seawater is 2.5. I don't know what you're talking about there, Jake. That alkalinity? Seven point. Did he mean 7.5? So, so. <laughs> Paula Pal, thanks. Bam. Yeah, appreciate that. And great beer to reef. Love the streams at Reef Bomb guests each week. Love hearing Chris talk about DKH and PH reef builders who makes those large hex frag discs that you have in the coral flats. And thank you, John Reefer Vermont for the super chat, man. All right. People are showing us some love here, Chris. Loving, digging this. Loving so it, have you, it. let me, uh, let me, wait, let me wait. sneak in one question here before um, you, um, you add another point. So I want to, I want to uh, probe a little bit on the, on the IDIP. Have you ever compared results of the IDIP to like an ICP test or results you can get from an alkalinity monitor? Like, um, you know, um, you know, the alkatronic or the uh, the cage director, have you kind of made those kind of comparisons? Because, yeah, alkalinity is by far the most important parameter for, um, you know, keeping SPS in reef tanks. I, I think it's an important one that we need to make sure stays above sea, at natural seawater or above. I, I used to think it was the most important parameter in an aquarium, but I do not agree with that anymore. And um, I'll, I'll get into that well, here. I think, in a minute, I, but, um, I think I know where you're I going compared... with that, but all right, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, um, when we first got the IDIP, we, again, like I said, we, we, we tested and tested and tested and tested and the consistency that we got. Now, this is the other thing. Only thing that's bad about the IDIP is if you, if you test and then you have somebody else test, they might get a different reading. And the reason why it's the consistency in how you actually test the water. So if you're going to be testing your water, you better test your water because the way you make the way you do the test is going to, you know, the consistency is going to be by the consistency and how, how the test was performed. So I have one of my guys who will have an idea, he'll test I dip and he's always just a tiny bit different than me, but it's not enough to worry about. Um, but have I tested against like any of the checkers? No. Um, I've never purchased one of the checkers. Um, I don't know anything about them, but I can say this when we got, um, our tridents 
um, when Terrence talked me into getting my apexes and I got the tridents for all of my systems and, um, i of course freaking out because I'm, I'm a control freak myself. I don't like something doing it for me. If I can do it myself, I'm actually starting to lean on the try the, the apex is a little bit more now because it frees my time up a little bit. Um, and if I see something kind of wonky on it, I of course get the eye dip out and I double check everything. Um, but the eye dip and the trident, when we first got the trident, the first test off the trident, we did an alkalinity test at exactly the same time, a calcium and a magnesium test, exactly the same time. I was pleasantly surprised with the trident. Was, I mean, almost dead on with all three of those parameters to what my IDIP was testing. And then we ended up sending off water to, um, we're lucky that we're here near the uh, UF Aquaculture Lab here in Ruskin, Florida. It's only about 45 minutes away. We sent some water off and had it tested. And the trident was almost dead on with the IDIP and the results from the uh, lab. So that was a big eye opener for me saying, okay, you know what, this, this, uh, this trident is actually a, a good unit. Um, and then I did my first calibration on the trident. And then I was like, whoa, what is going on with my parameters here? <laughs> I used their calibration solution and um, everything just went totally off. Like I, I, I was I freaking out calling up everybody going, what is going on? So then I got a little trick. If you trust your IDIP, test your IDIP, write your parameters down, put those programs in and use your system water to test, to, to calibrate your trident yeah. and you won't have yeah. those issues anymore. And I've been doing it that way ever since. And I'm actually, I'm super happy with that. How often do you but do the, um, I just got, uh, how often do you do the, uh, the IDIP? I, I test the IDIP with, uh, against the alkaline calcium and magnesium about once a week, just because, you know, one of the things that was, um, when we got our apexes, you know, the tridents were fairly new. We've had the apexes for, it was a year in February. They weren't that old. They weren't around for a super long time. And, um, they weren't sure how they were going to react with the open air environment that our facility is in, because if it's a hundred degrees and hundred percent humidity outside, that's what it is in my building. If it's 25 degrees outside, it's 25 degrees in my building. So with those fluctuations and those high temperatures was the biggest concern that, um, the guys at Neptune had, um, we didn't notice, you know, knock on wood, we didn't notice any differences in the tests, but you know, as the temperature got warmer, but we're making sure that um, a reagent kit that we get from Neptune it is gone in one month. So after that is where they weren't 100% sure about the reagents with that higher temperature. What was it going to? What kind of reaction was it going to have to the reagents, and was it going to mess up your tests? And again, I haven't seen it. Now I did see a weird calcium reading today on like one coral system which I'm going to have to, I put new reagents in. So sometimes when you put new reagents, you have to right, do the recalibration right. because right. it's a different lot number. But um, other than that, IDIP is great. Interesting. I've, I've, um, haven't really, um, you know, I don't know too much about it, but it's, um, it, it's, it's something, I mean, I use a, um, a cage director, you know, to measure my alkalinity. I, I only do it, um, once, possibly twice a day, depending on, on, uh, what I'm doing with it. But, um, yeah, I think, you know, being able to, to monitor the alkalinity, at least on a daily basis for me, has, has been great. You know, before alkalinity monitors came out, I was testing it once a week in a hobby-grade test kit, um, Salifert. Yep. And, 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 you know, 
it was good. Good test kit. Great test kit. I was getting, you know, I was I was having great results with my my tank, and but uh, you know now you can test alkalinity twenty times a day, but I think that's a little overboard yep. unless you want to control, you know, with with that uh, device. And uh, I, I saw Jake's already uh, made the comment. I I, I am the controller. I, the controller. So I agree with that. I wouldn't want to well, do that. I I want to also uh, thank Lynn Reef Nerd for the uh, for the super chat. Very generous. She says she loves the company. I'm assuming that's ACI. I might have to open a store just to order. I'm sorry. I was reading another comment. <laughs> no, that's all right. I got her covered. <laughs> um. Um. Yeah, it was it Reef Keeper was saying Chris is the first person to, to give a positive review of the iDip. Uh, the problem is with the iDip, most people don't give it the time. They don't learn the patience to, to actually um, do the test properly. Um, when I first used it, it was throwing me off. I was like ready to throw the thing against the wall. Um, and then as I just started playing around with it and, and, and just trying to be as consistent as I can with my swiping, um, you know, and my test kept getting more and more consistent every time I did it. I was like, you know, these things are great if you just take the time to learn how to use them. Um, they're a little bit more advanced and anything that's a little bit more advanced is going to give you more accurate results isn't going to be as easy to use. I mean, the Telefer test kit is great. I mean, I, I haven't used one in I don't know how long and I still think it's just uh, you put what three drops. I think it's four. Uh, and then four you drops go with and, the. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't even remember how to do it, <laughs> but, um, you know, it's, those kits are very easy, but again, there's margins of error in there that, that, that you really can't control. I mean, a drop is not a drop. Um, is your drop, is, are you dropping it, is it straight up and down? That's going to give you a more accurate drop than tilted to the side a little bit. You know, that, that all of that affects your test. And most people don't know that. And you always hold your dropper bottle straight up and down. If you're doing a syringe like at the Salifords, you hold that straight up and down. You don't hold it on the side. It's just putting, you know, it, it's just not keeping things consistent the way it's supposed to be done. And that will make a big difference in your testing. Plus, on Salifert, most people think you have to change the color all the way. But in reality, if you, if you, as soon as it starts to change color, that's when you stop. That's when you know where you're out going. Interesting. And I learned that because when I started doing that with my, Salifert, it was reading exactly I the dip. same as my iDip, and I didn't let it. I didn't let it change completely. When it first changed, that little swirl stopped see, swirling, stopped putting it in. I learned something new today. Like I said to you before the show, I always learn something <laughs> new on these shows, and I never knew that about the Salifert test kits. As soon as the color changes, that's when you stop. I always like went a dip, when you know, a drop or two after, just to make sure the color changed. When it when it's when when the when you put that drop in and you're swirling it and you see that little bit of a color change, you're done. All right, so I got to ask you. Um, I I stated that alkalinity I thought was the most important uh, parameter for uh, for a reef tank, specifically SPS. And you um, you beg Don't to differ. Agree. You you uh, you have a different opinion. What is the most important parameter for a reef tank? I want everybody to understand this right from the beginning, though. Um, listen, alkalinity is very important. Um, calcium and magnesium, they're also very important for your reef aquarium to keep stability in the aquarium. But if you really want to achieve stability in your aquarium, chase your pH. It's the, it's the thing that everybody says, do not chase your pH, you know? And when I met a friend of mine oh, over a decade ago, um, Chris Wood, um, he, he told me, I don't understand why people don't monitor their pH and why they don't keep their pH boosted. I just don't understand. I can't get my head around it. You know, as a marine scientist, 
pH dictates everything in your system. And I didn't believe him. I never went and, you know, never went any farther with the conversation. And here we are over a decade later, Jake and I, as a matter of fact, back when the beginning of COVID was, um, he said something about pH and, and, and I started talking about pH with him and him and I were going back and forth with it. And I started talking to my friend Chris about it. And he's like, well, dude, he's like, I've been trying to tell you that for over a decade. You got to chase your <laughs> pH. Stop chasing your alkalinity because when you're chasing your alkalinity, that's what you're doing. You're chasing alkalinity. It's, and the reason why is because of this little devil that's in your aquarium. And it's in every single aquarium. And you don't even realize how bad it is. It's called carbonic acid. And I'm going to have people that aren't going to agree with me on this. I don't care because I've, I'm proving what, my friend has told me for a decade that it is completely true. If you chase your pH, you won't have to chase your alkalinity anymore. And there's a reason behind that. When you put carbonates in your water, you have carbonic acid that's already present in your water because your pH is not an eight point. He told me to keep my pH around 8.25 and above. In the daytime, your pH will naturally rise because of photosynthesis taking place yep. in your aquarium. Okay. So, at nighttime, how do you fix that? We'll get into that down the road. But what happens is, is the carbonic acid buildup in your tank dissipates during the day because you have corals that are uptaking the CO2. Well, I'm sorry, not the corals, but the photosynthesis is taking place is uptaking it. So that raises your pH because there's less CO2 in the water, which means there's less carbonic acid in the water, which also means that there's less carbonic acid binding up your alkalinity or your carbonates and sticking it in every pore and crevice in your rock, in your any substrate that's porous will hold carbonates because carbonic acid is putting it, I like to say it's putting it in jail. And how do you free up your carbonates that are in your water? Well, there's a multitude of ways you can go about doing it. Keeping your pH up is the key thing. So how do you keep your pH up without um, doing some crazy things uh, like, like we're doing? <laughs> um, I tell everybody, you know, the old school reefers had it right. I mean, from the 70s when Greg Scheimer and, and Julian Sprung were dosing cockbosser in their system and they were keeping acropores alive to today, it still holds true. What's the difference between what they were doing and what we're doing now? What we're doing now is we're doing alkalinity calcium magnesium buffing, plus a bunch of other things, which is not, there's nothing wrong with that, but nobody's thinking about why we're having to add so much of that. You know, there's that little devil called carbonic acid that is making us add more and more and more and more and more constantly. Your corals aren't taking that stuff up all, all the time. I mean, you could, you could put alkalinity buffer in your tank and you can watch your alkalinity go you know stay stable and it'll fall out well that was happening in the middle of the day they the corals weren't even putting down calcium carbonate on their skeletons at that time mm -hmm. so why was your alkalinity falling is because the carbonic acid was binding it up and sticking it in your rocks sticking it in every pore and every crevice in your tank so everybody always says to me you're chasing your ph with um with with caulk phosphor and we're also using something called uh, potassium hydroxide, which is something I don't recommend anybody use. We're on a commercial level. We're on a 2,200-gallon system. You guys don't – any hobbyist doesn't need to use that stuff. I mean if you have a pH that is staying that low and you can't get it up because of – by just using Kalkwasser, there's other things you have to do to help help your system out. Bring in some fresh air to your protein skimmer. Get a CO2 scrubber on the air intake for your protein skimmer. There's so many things that you can do. 
what happens to the to your alkalinity when you dose calcium hydroxide or Kalkwasser? Everybody always says, "Oh, your alkalinity goes to the roof." It, 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 no, it boosts your alkalinity. No, it's actually your alkalinity was already in your system. You just didn't know it was there because your carbonic acid had it in jail. And <laughs> now, now it's getting released. In, now you're putting in hydroxides, which are then freeing them from their prison. So what happens is, and, and I can explain this to you in more detail. It's, it's, it's funny because when, when we first started using the potassium hydroxide on the farm system in the back, and we were putting one drop every three seconds in the system, and my pH went from 8.14 at peak during the day to 8.35. At one drop every three seconds, wow. my mind was like, what the <laughs> heck is this stuff? It is the nastiest stuff. I mean, and I'm putting it in my aquarium. You know, my wife's going, I can't believe you're putting that stuff in. If you overdose it, you're killing everything in the farm. And I'm like, I'm doing it on a control. I'm doing are you, it myself. Are you doing that by, you're doing that by hand? <laughs> I did for a week and a half until I until I had kind of a grasp of how it yeah. worked and, and, and what it was going to actually do to the system. Because, I mean, if I added 50 mils at a time, it wouldn't be a, a, a pure – 100% max concentration potassium hydroxide, I'd, I'd nuke my system. I mean, the pH would go through the roof. Um, we actually don't even, you know, I did the one drop every three seconds, and then I did the math to figure out how many mLs that would be in a minute. And then I did a calculation to do a one-third solution. I actually do one-third of the max concentration as a dose on a dosing pump now. And there's rules set in the apex so that it doesn't dose if it's above a certain pH. It only doses when it's at a certain pH or below. Um, but it's it's really amazing what even just calcium hydroxide does for the coral system. Um, I had a guy start using calcium hydroxide or caulkbuster, and he's like, my alkalinity has gone up so high. I'm like, well, what is it? He's like, it's at 8.9. I keep it at 8.3. I'm like, what are you worried about? Yeah, that's about? not a big deal. And he... I said, do your corals look good? He's like, they look great. And I'm like, well, when your corals start looking like they're stressed, then you're doing something wrong. And it went all the way to 13. Ooh. And now it's slowly, wow. it's because it was getting freed up. It was in his rock. It was in his biomedia. And it took about three months for his to start coming back down. But that's the thing nobody has the patience for. And everybody's freaking out over. Everybody thinks that if your alkaline doesn't stay stable all the time, it's not a good thing. In reality, once it peaks, it stays stable at that high alkalinity. But then as your corals utilize it and no more is being released from your rock, it will come down. That's why and you'll have that's why I don't um, control with my uh, cage director because I want to see every day what that monitor is reading. I want to see a gradual decline in the alkalinity because then I know my SPS are happy and sucking up, you know, that um, – that 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 alkalinity supplementation so i don't want you know even though i'm, I'm you know I'm, I'm a little bit lazy and i've talked about this before you know i could certainly look at the data if i logged on to the app every day to see what it is dosing and, and what it is not dosing in terms of how many mls per day and whether it's you know the corals are consuming but i just like to visually walk by that you know that that lcd screen to see what what that level is every every day just to know that i do too you know, my, my, you know, that, that things are healthy. Um, right. so yeah. And, and, um, what was, what's your pH? So, all right. pH wise, 
I am, um, I'm really good. I, I installed an air exchange unit about three months ago. So I've got, I got two systems. I've got 187 gallon established SPS dominant reef. That's been up and running for, uh, three and a half, four years or something like that. And it's, and it's uh, doing really, really well. And I got, I started a new 225 gallon peninsula tank uh, about five months ago. And I put Jake will uh, love this. I put corals in for the first time today. Finally, after nice. five months, I added some SPS frags. <laughs> I'm the patient type. So, um, cool. so on my established system, my before I put in the um, air exchange unit, my pH was 8.0 to 8.3, which you know is it was was great. I'm, I'm dosing two part on that system, and mm-hmm. um, but when I put in that air exchange unit, it jumped up 0.2 um, pH points. So, so you're at 8.2 to what? 8.4, yes. 8.5. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, And and on the new system, my pH, um, sometimes peaks out at eight, six. I'm running a calcium reactor. It's, it's barely running because I barely have any corals in there. So it's, it's peak. There's no biomass to take care of it. Right. So, uh, you know, it's it, that, and that system, it's eight, three to eight, six. So that's been huge for me because my tanks are in a finished basement and I'm in Vermont with the windows are closed in the winter time. So there's nothing coming from the outside in. And, um, you know, I tried running an airline tubing from the, uh, the air intake on the skimmer to the outside. I had a utility window that I was doing that with a little like half inch, you know, clear tubing hose doing that did not work for me. So, um, I tried that and, um, you know, I, uh, I, I was doing two part on the established system because I was afraid to use a calcium reactor because I knew that the pH would be would be low. But I always do dose cockwasser when I use a calcium reactor just to help boost the pH. A little trick for your calcium reactor, and most people don't know to do this. Um, something that I learned, and it's kind of just something I came up with. I mean, maybe some other somebody else did it before me, but. You know, my big concern was exactly what you said. When I when I got sick and tired of constantly dosing alkalinity buffers, magnesium and calcium chloride salts all the time to keep my my parameters stable, I, I bit the bullet and I bought, you know, big calcium reactors for these systems. And my biggest fear was, okay, I have a hard time keeping pH. I'm in an open air environment. I shouldn't have low pH. Yeah. You know, I, I, I shouldn't have these issues. And when I put the calcium reactor on, I wanted to make sure that there was no possible way that I was going to drop the pH even farther. So I talked to Julian. Julian's like, put a CO2 scrubber on it. And I'm like, oh, CO2 scrubber. I'm like, well, the biggest CO2 scrubber most everybody has on your aquarium is a protein skimmer. And most people think it exchanges and adds oxygen to your water. That's the biggest myth you could ever find. It adds no oxygen to your water. You can check your protein skimmer off. Your oxygen content will not change. If it changes, it's so minuscule, it doesn't make a difference. But your CO2 will go up. I guarantee you that, which means you have more carbonic acid in your system. So a protein skimmer is a huge CO2 scrubber. So I ended up taking my effluent from my calcium reactor, going up through the cap of the protein skimmer, running a hard line down into the water column of the the protein skimmer Mm -hmm. where the bubble blasters were just churning it up. And I tested the effluent coming out of the protein skimmer and I was at 0.1 drop from the main system, which if I had it going directly in, it was putting a a pH of of 6.5 directly into the, into the system. And before I started this hydroxide dosing, we were dosing two liters a minute through my calcium reactor. We were melting 
20 kilos of Julian Sprung's two, two little fishes um, reborn every month and a half. Wow. Um, I changed it out in January and the damn calcium reactor hasn't run, but 24 hours since the beginning of January. Whoa. And it just started running because my alkalinity finally has stopped leaching out of the rocks and being freed. My corals have finally uptaken enough of it to the point where my alkalinity peaked out in that system at 9.8 and never went above that, but never would go to below the 8.6 threshold where my CO2 controller kicks on to run my calcium reactor. So it was, I don't know, a week and a half ago, I called my buddy Chris up. I'm like, hey, Chris, I'm like, the alkalinity is 8.62. And he's like, oh, yeah? And I'm like, yeah, I'm like, we got 0.02 to fall in the next six hours, and maybe my calcium reactor will come on for the first time this year. And sure enough, it went to 8.58, and it ran for six hours. The alkalinity went from 8.58. Six hours later, it was all the way up to 9.05, and that's the highest it's that's the highest it's been in two weeks. Wow. All right. So we got we got some rumblings going on in chat here. First of all, uh, Greg Carroll makes a good point. Half of the listeners have not hit the like button. What are you waiting for, folks? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, 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 and Jake is, uh, all right, enough of the chemistry class. Let's talk livestock. And um, his uh, question related to uh, livestock is, ask Chris what fun corals he's been playing with lately. <laughs> Uh, Jake's going to like this one. Um, I, I have, uh, I, I found his three colors of Plerogyrus simplex. Um, that's a, a unique coral, um, grows just like a, um, paradivisa, uh, euphilia with branches, but little bubble corals on the ends of the branches. Um, you don't see it very often in the trade. I've got a, I've got blue, I've got green, and then I've got white and green molted, which was surprise because i thought it i didn't think it was simplex until i actually started looking at it because it was kind of a shorter piece but it's definitely a uh, a simplex with the structure of the polyps um that's probably one of my favorite pieces i know jake's been asking about that one i don't know what else i mean i've got so many corals what what, what do you want to talk about i mean i've got the you know different uh, uh we got cantophilias. Oh my gosh. I don't know where to begin there, right Chris, now. because what I saw is just <laughs> blowing my either. mind in terms of what you've got there. And I, I just can't wrap my, you know, head around it. Um, <laughs> Alex Correa is asking what, uh, ask, ask Chris what his uh, favorite acros are. Um, I don't know the fancy names, um, but uh, my all time favorite Acropora is Acropora Sohersonoi. Um, it is basically comes from Bali. Um, it's a very smooth skin. The coral lights get really long. Like you could have a polyp down here and a coral light coming up and then not another polyp until it gets to the top. It's, it's a very, very cool coral. That's probably my favorite Acropora. Um, Acroporas are by far my favorite, uh, uh, genus, um, in the, uh, whole, uh, coral, industry here i mean it's what started me with coral or with with this business was acroporas um the reason also i like that coral so much is because it is a uh it's 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 a tough one um it's it's a magnet for parasites and um 
being in the in the facility that we're in, it's not always as easy as people might think it would be to keep parasites away and out of the farm system. Although we have not put anything wild in that system now in well over a year and a half, um, we still have little issues here and there. But um, we're hopefully the new farm. We won't ever have those issues, but we'll see what happens there. So, so Chris, let's talk about quarantine. You know, you're, you're talking about pests in, in terms of them coming into the system. What do you guys do in terms of when you're bringing in new um, corals from the outside? What, what's your process in terms of trying to prevent pests from coming in? Well, what a lot of people also don't realize, I mean, I'm a big advocate for um, quarantining your corals, especially as hobbyists. You guys work hard for your money. You spend your hard-earned money on a beautiful piece of coral. You, you're crazy not to quarantine it or at least do some, you know, really good dipping um, to make sure that you're not passing or bringing parasites into your aquarium that you've worked so hard to maintain and keep. Um, as wholesalers, as importers, um, I was the same way. I mean, I, I was, I'm just a hobbyist that turned what I love and my passion into a way to make my living. And honestly, I wouldn't change what I do for anything because um, I wake up every day smiling and loving my mm -hmm. job. <laughs> but um, some people might not agree with me on this, but my experience tells me to go with my gut on how we do things because I've seen a lot of positives and a lot of negatives from dipping freshly imported corals. Um, what you have to take into consideration is when you import a coral, like I said earlier in this 48 to 60 hours for me in a box. Okay. What do you think is going to happen to those corals? Me taking them out of that nasty water that they're in. Even if it looks crystal clear, I don't care what anybody says. That water is not clean. It is dirty. And putting them straight into an iodine dip or one of these other harsh coral dips, what happens to the coral? I guarantee you we have more losses when we were doing the dipping immediately upon arrival yeah. and putting them directly into our coral systems. And when I was at my house, I started my business in my home and it was in my garage. We had, I don't know what, 3000 gallons of water running in my garage as we grew out from the 300 gallons we started with. We used to dip everything. It was a 12 hour process for us to bring in 30 boxes of coral. We dip everything and put it in the system. And we'd still have, in my opinion, was way too many losses. So I forget what happened. I had something important I had to do. The shipment was here early and I just said, we're putting them straight in the tank and my losses went way down. And I'm like, I'm not going through all that to kill corals when they're happy. If I see something, I can go through and pick it off of them or I can dip those corals and, and, and do my best to make sure that the corals are as healthy and as happy as they can possibly be while they're in my care. And so that's basically what we do. Now, when it comes to the farm, I'm dealing with Monty Nudies ever since the day we had that farm set up. And I, I'm not afraid to tell anybody that because if I hide something and somebody gets it from me, I want you to tell me about it. But what we do in here is we dip our corals twice a week, especially the Montes. I don't see the Nudies. That doesn't mean they're not there, but I'm always preventative maintenance doing all the Montes. Acropores, they constantly get dipped before they get fragged and going into the farm. Um, zoanthids, they get dipped in fresh water constantly because they're just notorious for spiders and, and nudibranchs, especially wild Chris, ones. Chris, what do you, Nothing we can do about what that. are you using for dips? Uh, I hate the dip we use. Um, I I'm using right now bear. That's what I use. Is the only thing that it's, I have found that enough. is a it's potent. It is. It's, it's just so bad. It's bad. It's not good for you. That's uh, for sure. If somebody found got me something that would actually take care of what I need to be taken care of that was available for a commercial use. I mean, people don't think about, you know, I dip, 
But if I was to use, and I love Julian Sprung's Revive, it's a great product. And I'm sure Julian would send me, you know, volume at a discount, but it's still, the Revive didn't take care of the one important thing that I needed to get rid of. And that was Monty eating news. Everything else, love it for it. But it didn't take care of the Monty eating nudies. So for me to use some of the other products that are on the market that are basically set up for hobbyists, the cost involved would be astronomical. I mean, think about it. We're using a 15-gallon dip container. You know, most people are using not even a gallon of water for their dip, okay? So if that container that you buy for a hobbyist only is good for five gallons, I'm using three of them at once <laughs> for one, one dip. And we change that dip water out two to three times during that day that we're using, that we're dipping the corals. So bear was the most cost-effective thing. And I was lucky to find the active ingredient so cheap that I can buy it in super concentrate. And it's like a hundred bucks for me to buy it. And it lasts me for about two weeks. Yeah. Um, you know, but on our scale, a hundred bucks is nothing compared to a two, 3,000. Yeah. Yeah. You that that would just not be a good thing. If you all of a sudden had, you know, some nasty pests coming into the, uh, to the system. So what about, uh, acro eating flatworms and, and eggs? Obviously the dips do not kill the eggs. So are you putting uh, stuff under a microscope? Are you really eyeballing, you know, the acros just to make sure the eggs aren't making their way through the dips? I do have to say that is one really good thing about my guy, Steven, that, uh, that, that, that takes care of the corals. Um, I, I, how he, I can see the eggs, and I, but he's got his face right on those corals, and he's scraping. Like we, when we do a good cleaning and a good dipping on the acros, I mean, we dip the acros probably once a month in our farm, just because. Not that we've seen parasites, but it's just you know what? If there's one, it's going to get nasty in time. And you know, being complacent is the worst thing you can do, especially in this industry, especially being a coral farmer. So we. Uh, Steven does a really good job at cleaning off the corals. And if we have um, a wild coral that's got them on it, I cut the base off completely right. where those eggs are. Yeah. That way I have just the – have to be. I mean, we're not perfect as, as as wholesalers when it comes down to that, but we do everything we can. Um, that's that's the best that we can for as long as we have the corals in our possession. What about um, parasitic copepods? Have you run into that pest at all on, uh, on acros? Mm. Black bugs? I guess you can call them a parasitic cobot, yeah. Red bugs? All those things. Yeah. I don't, they don't bother me at all. They don't scare me. They don't bother me. They're not even a concern of mine. Um, there's enough pest control out there that you can keep those things under control to the point where they won't harm your corals. But if you're not um, diligent about making sure you have that pest control in there, I mean, we have pipefish, alligator pipefish. Um, we have scooter blennies, mandarin gobies. Um, and most people say, oh, clown gobies aren't good for acropores. Well, most people don't realize that certain species of clown gobies are actually in the coral. They actually they actually help protect the coral. And those little idiot, you know, clown gobies that are this big, they'll eat those parasites for you. Um, we also do interceptor. I mean, I, I got yeah. uh, the UF Aquaculture Lab. Um, I actually just ordered it a couple of weeks ago. Um, you know, there's a really nasty pest that came out of Australia years ago on acroporas. It was uh, the acropora spiders. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I've heard about those. Oh, they're nasty, and you can have one, and not even think about it, and you know, dip that coral, get rid of it. We had a we had such a plague of those things probably two and a half years ago, and we couldn't figure out how to get rid of the damn things. And I learned that we do a triple dose of interceptor in the system where they are, 
and it nukes them. I mean, they're dead. You know, we, we put them under a scope after we found them, you know, just kind of floating around in the tank and they're gone. They're dead. Um, but then you got the eggs. So on our system, we're using uh, 14, it's 21 pills of interceptor for each treatment. And we do that three consecutive weeks about every six months. So Chris, just Chris, because. Chris, do you have a lot of dogs? <laughs> it's funny. <laughs> is your is your vet like just uh, you know kind of winking and nodding and, and giving you those pills? Those are my, tough to come by, right? I mean, unless you're like buying them in Canada or something like that. Uh, I mean, I've I've not got I've actually my my vet was um, you know pretty cool and and um, did me a solid once for uh, for some interceptor, but they're not easy to come by like they used to be. See, I have a veterinarian that works for the UF Aquaculture Lab in aquaculture. So um, when I when I ordered my first interceptor through him, I ordered it through the 1-800-PET-MEDS because I don't have time to go driving around here and there to find it at a vet whatnot. I'm so busy. I just want to get it delivered to me. So I, I set up and um, they said, well, I, I called the first time I ordered it. I called it Coral 1, Coral 2, and then I called it Monty, which is my one dog's name. And the guy calls me. He's like, um, "Do you, Coral One and Coral Two? And I'm like, "Yeah, they're my coral systems." He's like, "Well, what, what's your dog's name?" I said, "It's not for a dog, sir." I'm like, "How about please email? Here's the email address of my veterinarian. Why don't you email him? He'll explain to you what I'm doing. It's it's documented all over the internet of what this stuff does for an aquarium for parasites, red bugs, stuff like that. But you can't use Interceptor on black bugs. It it actually escalates them. Oh, really?" Yes, because the interceptor does not kill the black bugs. It actually kills all the copepods that are naturally occurring that you have in your aquarium that actually keep them somewhat at bay. I learned this the hard way. We had black bugs. This is oh, four years ago, and we dosed interceptor in the tank because I was. Everybody kept saying black bugs. You got to use interceptor. So we did it. The next day, I'm looking at my corals. I'm like, what the heck? I'm like, these things look worse. Oh. And then four or five days later, I could see the black bugs all over the corals. Oof. So then we learned that the only way to get rid of them is um, there's it's it's a pain in the rear end process, but we figured that out. It's basically you have to dip every coral consecutive days in a row in bear, and it took care of it for us. We haven't seen them since. Yeah, I mean, I was we we have a couple of uh, questions I want to get to in the chat here, but um, you know, my my old two hundred twenty five gallon tank, which which was um, you know SPS dominant and was thriving, I had acroweeding flatworms in that tank. And the way that I managed that problem was I took a turkey baster every week and I just basted the corals and blew the worms off. And I, I'm sure I, maybe I got like 50% of them. I don't know, but I had some wrasses in the tank that I think were also, um, you know, eating the, uh, the acroweeding flatworms. And I even had a pair of clownfish that were gobbling them up after I was, uh, basting them. Yeah. So, you know, the tank did great. I know uh, Sanjay Yoshi had, had um, you know, great uh, tanks with acroweeding flatworms and, and managed that. But um, sure. I know also a lot of people will, if they get those, will take out each acro and, and uh, make sure that they're removing the encrusting uh, base and dip weekly or whatnot. Do, do you think that is a, um, a way for somebody that has acroweeding flatworms in a display tank to manage a problem or do you think it's worthwhile just trying to live with the, uh, with the worms? 
I, I don't think you can live with the worms, honestly. I mean, you spend your hard-earned money on these little corals that you put in your aquarium. There's no reason for you to allow a parasite to devastate, you know, what your hard-earned money has gotten you and what you enjoy. Um, we're working on something new right now. Um, a, a customer of mine read a, read something in um, a German magazine about um, Melifix. And I got the whole formulation on how to do it. And I just haven't gotten the kahunas to actually put the stuff in my system. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to experiment with the new system that we're about to set up and um, see what kind of effects. But I was told that it doesn't have any ill effects on the corals whatsoever. But it stuns the parasites to the point where you just have to go in and blow them off, like you said. And you have rashes and other fish in there that will end up taking care of it. And in time, this person that did this study, the Melifix actually did eradicate his aquarium of all acroeating flatworms mm. um, and um, other parasites like Montiporine nudibranx, uh, Zoeating nudibranx. You know, it took care of all of that for him, but it was a process. It was a two-week process yeah. of him dosing this Melifix every single day in this particular dose that he kind of figured out. And um, I think it's been four years the dude hasn't seen an acroating flatworm, a oh. money-eating nudie, or a zoo-eating nudie, or anything that's remotely parasitic for his aquarium. And he, of course, hasn't added anything new either that wasn't fully quarantined for many weeks before he put it in the aquarium. Yeah. So got to take care of them one way or the other. There's multiple ways to do it. Just pick your poison. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, Northern Reefer has a question, and I don't know if you're looking at the chat. I cannot pronounce this. But uh, he says, uh, can you please ask Chris for the top tips for coloring up glabrescenes? Glabrescent? Glabrescent? Torch corals. Torch corals. Boost your pH. Get your traces up. Most people don't talk about traces. Nobody talks about boosting your pH. It's a thing of the past. It's a, chase your alkaline, chase your calcium, chase your magnesium. Your corals, if your pH is not 8.2 to 8.3 consistently, no matter what anybody tells you, they're somewhat stressed. And if they're somewhat stressed, they're not going to show their full beauty. When I started boosting my pH in my system, corals that were stagnant in growth for five years, that literally were the same frag on a plug, didn't grow, didn't do anything. We've been doing the boosting of the pH in a six-month period of time. That coral was like somebody lit a fire under it, and it just went boom. I'm gonna and I'm, I'm gonna second that because when I started my air exchange unit and saw that bump in the pH, I've been doing this for like three months. A big explosion in growth, very notice, very noticeable. It's 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 the it's the parameter nobody talks about, and it's actually, again, it's the most important parameter of your aquarium. I don't care what anybody says. It is the most important parameter. If you your pH dictates everything that happens in your tank because it, if the pH is higher, there's less carbonic acid. Carbonic acid, like I said, it's the devil. Nobody talks about that either. It is the little devil that is trying to make it harder for you to keep your corals alive. And if you can eliminate that little devil, you'll have so much more success. Your corals will be so much happier. I mean, there's so many things that we found. Okay, for years in our farm, the the video that you were showing. We had this favia that it's not a favia, it's dipsastria now, but it was a favia that we called the purple heart favia. And I'm showing a picture and of your whole facility, by the way, right now. Awesome. Um, the purple heart favia that we have, I still have it, but I almost, I almost completely lost it. This is after four years of farming it, getting it to the point where we're going to frag the mother frags to frag them so that we can mount them and release them in a month. 
to getting white band disease. Okay. Chalices are notorious for that white band disease. We had white band disease on those, on those favias, a couple of other favias, multiple chalices, um, leptocerus. I did nothing different in that farm system except for in was it October, November, started boosting my pH. Every single coral that had that issue, it disappeared. Yeah. It's gone. And for five, six, seven years, I battled it. And it used to frustrate me when I grow a chalice that was this big and we'd get ready to start cutting it down and this white band would start going through it or we'd frag it and then it would get white band disease. It's because the corals look healthy, but they're not healthy. Their immune system is not healthy enough. I mean, I'm not 100% on this, but this is the theory that my friend Chris who's a marine scientist. I trust every word he has. Everything he has told me has come true. When he's do start dosing cockfoster and potassium, he's like, watch the magic happen. <laughs> and I've been watching the magic happen ever since I started doing it. And I preach it all I can because I wasted so much time chasing my alkalinity and my calcium and my magnesium for those years, dialing in my calcium reactors and all these things. And if I'd have been dosing cockfoster, I still right now would probably be dosing other things because I would be past the point where I'm just achieving, which is ionic balance. And your corals will thank you for it. I mean, it's like you and me. If we go, if we're inside and it's 80 degrees outside, we live up in Vermont and we walk outside and it's 20 degrees outside. We're getting shocked. Okay. Is you walking outside? People say, oh, you're going to get sick. Well, just walking outside is not going to make you sick because it's cold. It's because your body is trying to stay warm so it stresses which makes you more susceptible it's the same thing with corals if your ph is low they're not they're not at their fullest health and if you don't get your ph up they'll never be as healthy as they should be and they're more susceptible to diseases bacterial infections stuff like that this is all coming to light after all the years of pulling my hair out trying to figure out how to cure that white band disease nothing worked and it was all I had to do is boost my pH and it went away. I mean, it just blows my mind. Yeah, I had um, Adam from Battle Corals on the uh, on the show a few months ago, and uh, he's the guy that put the bug in my head about the air exchange unit because he installed um, some in his facility, and he said it just made a big difference in terms of boosting that pH and seeing the uh, the coral growth. Um, John Reed from Vermont, man, thank you so much for that super chat. He um, says, sorry for going back to the iDip, but please ask Chris, iDip, yes or no, for a technical-driven reefer? And if yes, what are the considerations to take into account? What are his top two issues with iDip? My top two issues with iDip. Um, well, it doesn't test bromine. It doesn't test potassium. I mean, other than that, I mean, it, there's, there's some parameters I wish I could get tests for that I can't get tests for. I honestly can't say anything negative about the, about the iDip. Um, I've never had the issues that people that I've told that I swear by this thing and they get it and they want to throw it against the wall and they stop using it because they don't give it the time. And I do know that people that have Android phones have more problems with than people that have iPhones. Hmm. And you know, Vincent Chales, um, Bali Aquarium over in Bali, Indonesia, the biggest coral farmer in the, in the world, pretty much been doing it longer than everybody else. He knows how much I love that thing. So I sent him, I had two in stock. I sent them over to him with a whole other reagents and everything. And he is so mad at that thing because it doesn't connect to his Android. He actually bought an iPhone for his staff so that they could use it properly. <laughs> um, and they haven't had much of an issue, but Vincent will not use it. <laughs> um, it's, it's, uh, 
I don't know. I mean, it, it's it's a great unit. It's just you got to be patient. You got to be consistent with the way you use it. If you're not consistent with the way you use it, and you're all over the place, you're going to have problems. And everything you do in this industry needs to have consistency. You know, that's the bottom line: consistency, consistency, consistency. And it's in your tests. It's in the way you dose. It's in the way you you know your light schedule is. You know, all that stuff plays a huge factor. And I mean, because the world is a consistent thing. The sun rises, the sun sets. It's, you know, the ocean stays constant. You know, I mean, it doesn't really change. And the more we can do that in the aquarium, the better off we're going to be with keeping these animals happy and healthy. So uh, you, you, you just mentioned it in in your last uh, set of comments and Alex Correa is, is asking about this. And it's something I wanted to talk to you about is lighting. So um, Alex's question is, can you please talk about lighting? Many aquapora keepers use metal halides and say they are the very best. And I have to admit, I am a a metal halide user and have been for a long time, but I am using LEDs on the new tank. So that's, um, that's, that's exciting for me. Um, But yeah, a lot of people, he says, are returning their uh, halides for LEDs. So what what are you using there, Chris, facility and, and uh, why? I tell you, I, I like Ellie. I mean, I'm sorry. I like metal halide so much that when uh, Mac the 2019 was here in Orlando, I um, called Dave Dak, went over at um, Coralview and asked him how many metal halide bulbs he had in stock and if he could bring them all down to me. And he's like, you want those things? And I'm like, how many do you have? He had 140 of them. I said, bring them all. Take them all. Because I am never going to stop using metal halides. They grow your corals faster than LEDs. I can, I, I, I'm, it's proof from my facility itself. I have LEDs, I have metal halides, I have T5s. My acros grow better and look better under the metal halides. At first, when you look at them with the metal halides on, you're like, they they look good. And then you take them and move them under that blue LED, and you're like, holy cow. So then you have the aspect of LEDs on an all-blue spectrum versus your full spectrum on your metal halide makes them – color up better i do agree with that but then you get no growth and i'm not in the i'm not in i don't do what i do to just have beautiful corals i am in do what i do to grow the corals so i stick with what i know is proven has been proven for 40 years plus metal halides will grow your acros leds will show your acros Mm. that's it i say metal halide for grow leds for show now (laughs) Now I make a bumper sticker out of that, that, man. (laughs) (laughs) My, my mind is being changed slightly. Oh, really? And quick question though. What do you, what, what metal halide bulb do you like? Uh, My favorite of all time, the, the, um, the rate rate radium. Uh, I did this with Jake, a virtual high five, man. That is my uh, bulb (laughs) of choice. (laughs) I have to say this though. The radiums will grow your corals and make them look great. Yeah. But if you really want some amazing growth and they make your corals look ugly until you move them into the blues, no. use some 65K with stockies. stockies. Yeah, That yeah. bulb has insane par and just has insane growth potential from your acropores. Um, I mean, I've never seen an acropora humilis stay fully colored up unless it was put underneath of them, uh, a 65K with saki. And I... I don't like them, but I do. They're not I pretty. Do use them? Yeah. No, they're not. But the, I have to say, the, the next bulb I would say one of my favorites back when they first came out on a double ended was was the Phoenix bulb. I loved that light. That light was really good for growth and color. Um, and I also, when I ACI started, 
with acropores only, and I was using um, I used radiums over one tank, and I used reflux ten Ks. Oh my lord, did that bulb ever make blues blue? I mean that. <laughs> You could turn a brown turd blue in like two weeks with that bulb. I mean, it, it was just amazing what the Reflux 10K did. I don't even know if they put them on, if they're even on the market anymore. Um, I know when Dave brought me his bulbs, I got 20K Reflux, but I didn't get any 10Ks. So, um, so you're you're yeah. you're using pretty much middle halides over your your tanks at this point, but you did say you're slowly kind of thought is changing on bulbs or uh, lighting. It is. It's starting to change. I think LED technology is evolving tremendously. And I think the, you know, I remember when the first LEDs were out, um, I can't remember what they were called, but um, one of the stores down here in Tampa bought all those things. They were super expensive and they were just junk. And his coils never looked good under them. So he put metal halides and T5s up. Um, we use, we use in here, we use metal halides. Um, I think there's like 35 metal halides, anywhere between 400 and 250 watt in my farm right now. And we use probably, I think, well, actually, we're changing them out tomorrow. It's like 150 T5 bulbs that we have to change out tomorrow. And um, I do use the Illumagic Blaze. I love the light. I just can't take photos under them. No. <laughs> um, and then the newest light that I got turned on to, and, and it's taken me a while to get them. Um, Terrence from Neptune told me about the uh, Coral Cares. And he's like, dude, he's like, you'll be blown away. He's like, they actually grow your corals extremely well. So I waited and waited and waited until they actually finally came into the U.S. market. Um, I was going to actually buy them directly from um, Europe uh, through Dijon, but I didn't because of the 220 aspect. And I kind of wish I would have because they changed the light to the Gen 2. It's a little less wattage. Um, but what I've seen from them, and I've only been using them since, I don't know, the beginning of December. No, no, no. January. I started them up in January. We're healing acros from frag from a wild colony that we hold for two to three weeks. We're holding it. We're fragging it. And then we're putting it under the coral cares just to see how fast they would puddle. And I was pleasantly surprised with a, P, with a system that was not being boosted with pH. We had about a three-week from frag to puddle over the glue which still isn't sellable to me, but yeah. I'm, I can't wait to see what they're going to do with my pH elevated system. Cause we're getting ready to add four coral cares where I'm, I'm, I'm actually taking down four metal halides and putting four coral cares up, mm. but I'm going to use the metal halides in my new farm system. So <laughs> that's amazing because, uh, I think the majority, if not, uh, nearly all farms out there or, uh, you know, large, uh, facilities growing corals are using LEDs to, uh, to do them. But, um, I mean, that's my perception. I don't know if that's reality. Um, no, I mean, it is, it is probably the way it is. I mean, it's not cheap, uh, to do farming corals is not cheap and metal halides are expensive to run. And, you know, I get it, but I'm also learned that if I want them to grow, I need to get the right light over top of them too. And I don't believe LEDs grow your corals well fast enough. I haven't seen it prove me wrong. Yeah. You know, I think, um, I think a lot of people uh, shy away from the halides these days is because of the heat that they emit. And uh, the expense yep. in terms of the bulbs, but I, I I don't really buy that because I think in terms of the electricity, it's um, probably a watt. A watt's a watt, right? Right, exactly. A watt's a watt. Yeah, a watt is a watt. That's what I've been saying to people for all along too. If you think you're saving money because you're using less because they're LEDs, if your driver's 300 watts and you have it running at 20 percent, you're still driving 300 watts. It's not driving 20 watts or 20 percent of that. You know, it's. The driver is what dictates how much power draw you have, even if you're at you know whatever percentage you're using. So 
it's I think it's misleading because I also put my hands underneath my coral cares out there and I'm like, there's a lot of heat coming off of these. But then I do go to my metal halides and feel that it's probably twice or three times that. But the perception of cost savings, I haven't seen it because I'm in open air and I can't, I can't, you know, give you any valid data on what money I'd be saving if I switched to all LEDs because I seriously don't have of course, the cash flow to turn my whole entire place into LEDs. And two, yeah. if I do and my production of my cores, my growth of my cores goes down, then it was a waste. And it doesn't make sense to me. So a couple of comments here. Reefkeeper is saying Coral Care Gen 2 is working amazing on my frag tank. Acros grow much thicker under them. Um, so, More dense. So uh, the Herm 14 has an interesting um, – um, point said what about these new leds like kessel a500s jake adams is saying those lights are like metal halides very interested in people's reviews once they're out for the hobbyists have you heard anything about those new um kessels just like you just said they're new yeah okay so what data does anybody have i mean i i, I trust and appreciate jake's opinion on them you know the look and everything is if it looks like a metal halide light that's awesome because i love the flicker i love the way a metal halide makes your aquarium look but show me that they're going to grow corals you don't have any data on that light yet nobody's got any data on that light yet if it's brand new so um i can't say anything positive or negative about it it's it's um a brand new lighting system and i hope that Kessel got it right. And these things do grow corals extremely well because that's a game changer. I mean, that's what we're all here to do. I mean, is to keep our corals happy and healthy. Some people just have, it's a hobby to them and they don't care how fast the corals grow, which is perfectly fine. You know, make them look great so you can enjoy them. I a hundred percent agree with the led side of it for, you know, the savings in the heat side of it. And, you know, just the overall look of the corals is definitely better under leds do um do you uh, actively use like a par meter i mean have you gotten broken out a par meter with with the um you know you plan to do that with the new phillips light and and other any other new lighting that you have i mean what what what's your uh, butter zone there in terms of par for your acros honestly i don't think par in my opinion you know people can say what they want but i i've never really gone by what par readings are um, I mean, I know what my par is. I was curious because everybody starts talking about par. What's your par level? What's your par level? I had no idea for well over a decade what my par level was. I just knew that looking at my corals, are they happy? Are they growing? Are they beautiful? Yes. Okay. Then the par must be good for them, right? So I got the par meter just because I had people want me to tell them what I was keeping my acros, growing my acros under. In the farm in the back, we're around – under the 250 watt bank of six that's going down the middle, it goes from the edge of the of the reflector into the middle of the reflector. It's like 550 to 650. Oh wow! Okay, and under the 400s, we go from 750 to 850. So wow. our par level is like super high. But I can take those same corals that were farmed under that light and that intense light, and move them to a system with um, a coral care LED that I'm getting about 280 par out of under this much water, but two feet above the water. And the coral looks just as good three or four weeks later, a month later, two months later. Um, so honestly, it's lighting is very important, but some of my fastest growing and best looking corals are in 30 par growing, happy, 
Really? I feed them. I, I think there's a huge disconnect of what is in reality of what a reef is. You know, I'm sure Jake can come on here and chime on this. I mean, you can go diving on a reef and, you know, you look at acroporas and, and the environments that they grow in. I mean, you can go to the Outer Swains Reef in Australia that's crystal clear, 100 feet straight down. You can see the bottom. And that light on those corals is so intense, you can never mimic it in an aquarium. And then you can go to a reef that's an inshore reef that's got acroporas growing all over it. A lot of them are usually like milliporas and tenuous and, you know, stuff that's much easier for lower light environments. And they're being fed so much because the water is not crystal clear. It's an inshore silty reef. And I think the biggest misconception about corals is, is where do they all come from and how can you make a happy medium to keep them all in one system? Jake can actually tell you, he's like, wow, you got LPS, SPS, you got all of it in one system. And I've got just different light racks, you know, in different areas for these corals to grow in. Um, I, I, I have the par meter there just to cater to people that want to know about it. Honestly, could, could give two you-know-whats about it. It doesn't mean anything to me. I look at the corals. They tell me whether they're happy or not. Can you um, – so Alex uh, Correa has got an uh, interesting point. Paris just, he's saying Paris is part of the equation. Most important is spectrum, distribution, and delivery of the, uh, the photons. Are you um, at all uh, – 100%. Yeah. 100%. That's why LEDs, um, I think, are somewhat a problem. And the first, you know, it, you know, the first uh, LEDs that were out, they were pretty focal pointed in hot spots of those particular lights. Isn't your corals any good? You know, you need to have a good blend of light. And if you've got a hot spot of blue and a hot spot of white, and they're basically right next to each other, that's that's not doing your corals any justice. And one of the things that Terrence told me about the coral care was the was the is it the diffuser or the blender, whatever. When you look at the coral carriers, you can see the diodes, but it's opaque. And from what I was explained, the LEDs all hit that, and then it refracts back and forth in that little thin space and just blends all that light together before it actually comes out the bottom. So you get a blended light versus a, you know, all the different hotspots. Um, and that was one of the things that I really noticed. I mean, like I said, I like my Illu Magic lights. I think they do a really good job. Um, at keeping corals nice and uh, colored, uh, acropores from the wild about five weeks and they're going downhill with the Illu Magics. I put the coral cares on and had a, had the, with the lower par <laughs> about a hundred points lower with the coral cares versus the Illu Magics. And I'm getting and holding and improving the color on wild acropores versus degrading the color on wild acropores. So there's a perfect example that par means nothing. And exactly what, who was it that mentioned that? Alex, Alex? Correa, yeah. A hundred percent right. It's all about the distribution of the light and, and how it actually is presented to the corals itself. If you have a metal halide, you're getting a full spectrum. If you have a T5, you're getting a full spectrum. If you have an LED and you've got a hundred LEDs up in there and you got reds over here, reds over here and blues over here and greens. You got focal points. If you don't have something blending all of that as one before it gets to the corals. And if you don't have the blending and again, the technology is getting better and better. I think radion, ra radium, radion, radion, yeah, radion's got yeah. a newer light out. And I, and from what Jake said, it's really does a good job at distributing, distributing the light better. Um, so that's good. Advances are happening, which means we're going to have happier corals. As long as people boost a pH, uh, yeah, I uh, I'm with you on that, man. <laughs> you know, so I you know, so I've I've been using metal halides, radium bulbs specifically for for many 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 years, and I um I'm very nervous about 
using LEDs on my new tank. So, you know, it's, it, it, it's been hard for me in terms of kind of like getting away from something that I know that works so well, like you've been talking about. Um, so it got, I don't like change either. What's that? I don't like change. Yeah, either. I know. I don't, I don't. And <laughs> so, so, um, what I wanted to do was, um, I wanted to kind of try to bring a little metal halide into my new LEDs. So, uh, a buddy, a reefing buddy of mine, uh, telegram, on YouTube and, and Instagram helped me out. He he put together a spectrum that mimics a 400 watt um, 20k Hamilton bulb as well as a 250 watt um, 20k radium bulb to um, you know to for me to use that spectrum with the I'm using GHL Mitra's uh, for for the LED uh, lights and they uh, they closely match the AB plus spectrum that folks have a lot of luck with with the uh, with the Radeon Gen 5s you know the Ecotech so right. that's um, you know and i just put coral you know, you know, a few frags into the tank and and um, but that's, that's, that's kind of like the way i'm holding on to a little bit of the metal halide in me in the in these LEDs is using that spectrum that mimics the bulb that i love the most which is the uh, yeah, 20k I mean, bulbs yeah, I mean, they they are a good bulb. They've been proven for a long time. And um, I, I, the thing that scares me is and the reason why I bought so many metal halide bulbs from when I had the chance to is if they stop producing them, you know, how am I going to, yeah, what are you, gonna you do? know, what am I going to do? I mean, I have enough metal halide bulbs. We change out, what, 35 a year? How often do you change them out? Once a year? You know, I try to do it at every nine months, but um, are you, when are, COVID hit, are they over, are I, they, I lost my. Huh? Are they? Are you overdriving the uh, the, the bulbs, or are you um, just running them on electronic ballast? If I can, yeah. If I can, yeah. Um, no, we have. Um, I, I use the select a watt ballast yeah. for the majority of my ballast, yeah. and they have um, every one of them that I have has a boost on the two hundred fifty watt or a boost, and then a four hundred watt or a boost, yeah. and I always keep it at the boost because yeah, um, I want to drive them as hard as I can. Yeah. I did find that um, the the light tends to be more. Um, it, it, it's not as I, for some reason when a metal halide is brand new and it comes on, I always see a yellow tinge to it, no matter whether it's a twenty k or whatever it is. And when I turned the boost on, I didn't notice that that yellow tinge lasted for very long. So overdriving them just means that all those little ions inside there, the gases, are just freaking out to the point where they're just going to where they need to be and they're producing what they need to produce instead of having, you know, a slight less, you know, wattage going to them, what, what is necessary overdriving them doesn't hurt them. It just probably burns them out a little bit sooner. Um, I don't like leaving them in the past nine months, but this last batch is in there for a year and it's actually starting to bug me out. <laughs> yeah. You know, I used to use the, um, the PFO magnetic, ballast to uh to overdrive my uh my radium bulbs and they stopped making them the pfo ballast you couldn't find them yep. anymore so yep. I, I i went to the uh to those switchable uh, electronic ballasts um and i had been switching them out like every uh eight to nine months but i've been kind of extending that to a year to save a little bit money but now you're kind of making me wonder about that well, I mean, I think there's a lot of studies done and um, people say it's a myth at nine months. I mean, the bulbs will last. I mean, I, I, I use the bulbs around my building <laughs> when when the metal halides that are this is an old building. When the metal halides go out, we just go up and put a 400 watt 20K in. But, you know, some of those bulbs have been burning for seven years. 
And, wow. you know, they, they burn forever, but the spectrum does change. I mean, that's yeah, a given. Right. Um, you know, so I have, after seeing the video that you got that my wife sent me, my, my wife put that awesome little tidbit together for you. And then she's like, this was a year ago. And I'm like, yeah, this was right after we changed the metal halides, like a month after we changed them. I'm like, look at some of those acros. I'm like, I know that one. It don't look like that right now. <laughs> and the same bulbs are in the in the fixtures. And I'm like, okay. I'm like, I, I messaged my friend Daniel. I said, or my, my manager Daniel, I said, we're changing metal halides tomorrow. I don't care what else you have to do. You're not doing it. You're changing metal halides. You're changing deep eyes. It's got to be done. It's more important to keep the animals happy than to do anything else you have to do on the farm unless it's going to be hindering keeping the animals happy. <laughs> so... But yeah, I mean, uh, metal halides are great, and I'm starting to like certain LEDs more. Good. Um, uh, you know, I I think we uh, as metal halide uh, fans have to kind of think about reality down the road in five years. That might just not be uh, realistic. But um, so, dude, we've uh, we've been going for about an hour and forty minutes. I, I do want to be respectful. That's it. All right. Well, I guess we're gonna keep going. <laughs> <laughs> I still got a bunch of questions and folks, if, uh, if you got some more questions to put them in the chat, I'm doing my best to kind of keep track of them. Um, I've seen this pop can up. Can I take a quick, yeah, can I take a quick break. Yeah. All right, I'll be, give me two minutes. Yeah. All right. We're taking a little, uh, time out. And if you haven't hit that, uh, if you haven't hit that like button yet, please hit that like button because, um, we got the thumbs up to keep going on here with, with, with Chris. I think he's maybe refilling his beer perhaps. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm doing. <laughs> my, my beer is empty. <laughs> So, I mean, I could take another run for the fridge myself, but... Yeah, buddy. I am having a good time, bud. I got a glass of water here as a backup. Uh, you know, and it's... Uh, my son's like, are you having a good time? I'm like, yeah, I'm having hey, a we're talking. Hey, uh, we're could... talking reef tanks. You know, we're talking reef stuff here. How can you not we're have a good time? We're talking reef stuff here, buddy. Uh, don't you... you know, he's, he's walking around here in just his underwear. I'm like, don't you dare come back here and get on the video. <laughs> yeah, we don't want to see, we don't want to see that. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, so this question's come up in terms of um, nuisance algae. And, and um, yeah, it, and it's about ChemiClean. But let, let, let's, let's get to that question in a second. Um, I've seen, you know, I, I saw it in terms of your system that you're using egg crate in your, um, in your mm -hmm. frag systems and, and what have you. And you've talked about nuisance algae. I think um, one perception out there is that egg crate can leach out phosphate, but um, they do make egg crate specifically for um, that's apparently reef safe or for, for reef aquariums where you won't see that phosphate leaching out. Any any advice for somebody starting a um, a frag tank that's even plumbed into a display tank that doesn't have an algae problem? How do you keep a frag tank algae free? Is there um, any tips that you can provide in terms of what you guys do at the facility there? I mean, I think, um, I mean, I could throw out a couple of things, you know, obviously good flow is, uh, is important. You don't want to have that frag tank to become a, a detritus trap, but um, you know, it seems like these frag tanks can be, um, you know, a, a way for uh, problematic algae to find its uh, home into your system. So what do you guys do to, um, you know, to try to keep that stuff um, from being a, a pain in the ass. Well, uh, algae is, of course, everybody's nemesis in any reef aquarium, but it is, it's supposed to be there. I mean, algae grows on reefs. Um, and where you have reefs and you have corals, you have fish, you have hermit crabs, you have all these different grazers that take care of all that stuff. If you have a frag tank, you gotta, you gotta keep 
um, snails. You got to keep, you know, algae grazing fish. You, you have to keep cleanup crew in your system. You can't expect your reef to take care of itself without that cleanup crew. And you also just need to be mindful of your, of your water parameters. Um, one of the ways that, you know, we had, uh, this was a couple of years ago, I used a whole bunch of man-made rock when I redid the sump of the farm. And after we put this new rock I'm showing in, the sump, again, I'm showing the sump, by the way. Oh, nice. The sump is, uh, yeah. That's a whole, no, that's a whole nother topic. <laughs> <laughs> it is a whole nother topic. We can talk for hours. Ask Jake. <laughs> um, but no, uh, I put, I put some, um, I'm not going to say who it was, but it was, I put, I put, um, man-made rock in my sump, purple man-made rock. It's, I thought it looked awesome. It was amazing. Um, it was great to put in for some substrate for the, for the sump. Um, I'm slowly removing all of that. I don't believe that we even need substrate in our sump, but that's another topic itself too. Um, but the figured out that that rock was, was leaching, um, phosphates and other, um, nutrients that you might not even think about that were causing algae outbreaks in my system. I mean, when you have, a, you know, at that time, the system was only two 12 foot by four foot tanks instead of the two 12 by sixes that we have now. And we had that thing chocked full of frags and, and colonies. And I used to have to pay two people every day, all day for months, I mean, months scrubbing algae off of oh, frag really? And I mean, I was just like, something's got to give here. Yeah. You know, that's, and I'm, I'm talking to Julian where I'm, I'm dumping in lanthanum chloride every single day. And I'm keeping my phosphates at like, you know, 0. 0.3, Point two, and that's dumping lanthanum chloride in every single wow. day. So, um, my friend Richard Back uh, from Efficient Auto, you know him. Um, yep. He uh, he um, introduced me to Josh from uh, Clearwater Scrubbers, and um, you know I'm like, you know, <laughs> it's just another, another piece of junk I got to put on my aquarium. Another thing I got to maintain, you know. And I, I refused him; didn't work. You know, they started talking to me about it, and I'm like, you know what? I'm like, I'll give it a try. So we put, um, and he told me I needed two of the commercial size scrubbers for that system. I put one on because that's all I could had. That's all I had space to put on. And literally, in I put it on in December, and in March, I haven't scrubbed. We didn't scrub a frag plug since that day, and that was over three years. And what ago. are the phosphates at right now? Point three. <laughs> <laughs> But my nitrates are way down, um, and honestly, um, for the longest time, my, my nitrates were at 0 0.03, 0 0.02. When the scrubber went on, it started making me learn a little bit more about chemistry because you don't think about what uh, algae growing in your aquarium is actually taking out of your water that your corals can utilize. And algae actually removes a lot of traces. It actually removes copper. Um, I, I mentioned this earlier, copper, selenium, molybdenum, all, all the minor trace elements that act as nutrients that are good for photosynthesis, these allergies remove from your water. So we learned that for six straight months, these scrubbers, I was like just happy, happy, happy that my guys weren't scrubbing plugs. Yeah. We didn't have any issues. And my scrubbers were, I would, when we were feeding, we were, that's when we were feeding five pounds of reefroids in three months. You know, I would test the phosphates the morning of the day we fed. We fed. I'd test them the morning after the day we fed, and I would test them again the next morning. So I'd give twenty-four hours between my tests, 
and I figured out that the scrubber was literally removing 0.2 ppm of phosphates wow. on a daily basis. Wow. And it blew my mind. And then it stopped. It just like all of a sudden was not doing the same thing. And I'm going, what the heck is going on? I was like, thought we had all this dialed in, but there's variables. Science is science. Yes. But if you don't know all the variables, you don't got anything real concrete. And I'm tired of people telling me they know facts, but did you know about this variable, this variable, this variable, this variable? There's so many variables in every single reef system that you cannot predict and you cannot know until that variable throws itself in your face. So every system is completely different when it comes down to what we do, what I can explain to you. I can give you a starting point on some things, but that doesn't mean it's going to work exactly. You're going to have to tweak it yourself. Bottom line is we learned that with – ICP results, we had zero trace elements. I mean, absolute zero. And I was dosing them. I mean, there was not a single trace element in the system that was considered a nutrient or any minor that I would be normally dosing. And do you, uh, even the copper was at zero. Do you guys, uh, how, how much do you do in terms of water changes that try to uh, replenish uh, trace elements? I mean, you're, you're saying you're dosing trace elements, but are you also doing like decent sized water changes to help that along? Um, Water changes don't really do a whole lot for you for traces. Um, I've tested salt water from multiple companies. I'm not mentioning any names. And they claim they have all these things in them and they have nothing in them. And it's frustrating to me when you're selling a product to somebody that buys it because they're trusting what you have on there on your ingredients in it. And they work their ass off all week to get that bucket of salt because it's more expensive and it's no different than the bottom of the barrel. That's not all of them. Some of these salts out there claim they have all these things in them and they don't have any of it in them. And it's frustrating because a water change is good because you're getting that fresh water back in your system. You're getting, you know, some things being replenished, but not everything is being replenished. The trace supplements that you put in your aquarium, you know, by the manufacturer's dosing, are a starting point. They're not real. I mean, if it says to add one drop for every so how many gallons and you adding exactly what they say, you're maintaining your trace level. You're not boosting it to where it needs to be. Um, I was going with my trace supplement, which is by Captivate Aquaculture. It's called Isolate MT. Um, and it's got, uh, it's one supplement and I have to add in my main farm system, I went from adding, what was it, six mils of this to now I'm adding 18 mils of it. And I've got a local guy that's dialing in his ICP machine and he's getting samples from me left and right. He's like, keep them coming, keep them coming. I need to get this dialed in. And he's like, your levels of your, um, of your miners have gone up from test to test. He's like, you bumped your dosage up. And I was like, yeah, he's like, you're still not a natural seawater level. So I'm talking to my friend, Chris. I'm like, Chris, I'm like, you're going to have to really figure out how to make me even more concentrate or get that price down because I'm going to end up spending a lot of money on traces. And he's like, listen, as long as you have them in the water, he's like, it's better than not having anything in the water. He's like, whether you get them at natural seawater levels or not, that's up to you. And I agree with that. Um, are my, I look at my corals. Are they happy? Yes. I might just keep it where we are right now, but experimenting down the road might be something else I would work at, look at too. Cause I'm always into trying something new when it comes to improving the health of the animals that we farm. And I love so much. I mean, it's what it's about. It's not about anything, but the animals for me, I could care less about a dollar I make 
the dollars are nice because he feeds my family, feeds some my employees' families, but without healthy, beautiful animals, I can't make a buck. Yeah, no, it's got to be very gratifying. So, uh, what what do you think in terms of um, you know you mentioned uh, lanthium chloride and 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 what have you? What do you what do you think of uh, quick fishes? Quick fixes like ChemiClean to um, help with cyano and, and what have you. Is that something you guys have ever used in terms of trying to battle that crap? Or uh, do you not just uh, believe you, you just, you really try to like lean on natural methods before you would go to that? I lean on it. I go as natural as I possibly can. I mean, you know, uh, I use ChemiClean all the time, but not for what most people think. Um, ChemiClean is getting rid of the of it for you but you didn't fix your problem it's going to come back so you're going to continuously have to chase it if you don't fix your aquarium if there's if, if you have these issues in your aquarium there's something wrong if you don't fix it you're going to spend money on ChemiClean every time you see it pop up you're going to dose it again it's not harmful to your aquarium um we use it as a preventative maintenance for bacterial infections i was going to ask, gonna ask you about that we use a high dose of it in our systems. I think it's, I have to look, I don't remember what it is, but I think it's like double or triple the amount of the dose for what it's meant for. <laughs> good night, buddy. Have a good night. <laughs> See you in the morning. Um, my son's going to bed. Uh, but um, no, um, we use it in a higher concentration for um, battling against bacterial infections. And with all the corals we import, you know, we, we use ChemiClean as a dip for stressed corals upon arrival. If we get a coral that comes in, the water's milky. You know, I can put that coral straight into my system and watch it deteriorate. Yeah. And it does every time. I mean, I guarantee you, I've been doing this for a long time. You save one in a hundred if you just stick it in your aquarium and just let your system take care of it. But if you have a method that you can use like this dip that my employee Stephen came, you know, found, it's, it's public knowledge i mean it's all over the forums he's like let's try ChemiClean dipping the corals that look like they're stressed with their gaping mouths it could be a bacterial infection and we've heard i've heard i've read good things about this so when a coral comes out of the bag in dirty water it goes straight into a 20 gallon aquarium with five gallons of water in it and i forget how many grams of ChemiClean and a bubbler and we put the coral in there for a half an hour to an hour and then it goes into my system and since we've been doing that we lose three or four out of a hundred versus saving one in a hundred that come in in dirty water. So ChemiClean, I think is a very good product. Um, Jeff Turner won't tell me what it is. <laughs> uh, it's not an antibiotic for everybody that thinks it's an antibiotic. It is not an antibiotic. It is something else that he uh, will not tell me, um, which is fine. Um, he's got to keep his, uh, you know, secrets for his company because it's a big, it's a big thing. People use it and swear by it. And I, I swear by it for my dipping. Do you, do you, um, are you, um, testing every now and then to find out how much good bacteria you have versus bad bacteria it's funny you ask that because um my my uh a customer of mine that just bought this um uh icp analysis equipment and he's been dialing in with me he's he gave me dna tests so i can swab the insides of my pipes uh-huh and he's like he's like just do it. He's like, you're going to be blown away. He's like, how long have these systems been running? And I'm like, well, these have all been running in here for a minimum of eight years. He's like, I will bet you, you have well over 900 to 1100 different types of bacteria growing in your pipes. And you have no idea about it. <laughs> He's like, 
please just send them off. And he, he gave them to me like three months ago and I still haven't sent them off. I'm just, <laughs> I, I see him sitting there. I'm like, Oh, I gotta go get that done. <laughs> but I, I'm busy and uh, COVID has made me super busy and I just don't get to do some of the things I really want to do, but um, I really need to just sit down and read the, the DNA kit and actually do it because I'm really curious as to what we have in there um, to see if uh, maybe I need to do some sort of overhaul to some bad bacteria that might be in the system. Yeah. Um, Cause there's possibilities. Yeah. Um, all right, man, we're coming up on um, a couple hours in the live stream and, and um, I saw, I saw a couple things in the chat and maybe, maybe this will be our okay. uh, last topic in terms of um, bare bottom versus. That's up to you. Yeah. You know, um, I think we just want to have you back, uh, Chris, because <laughs> It's a great conversation. I'm happy to come back whenever. Yeah, and we could just, I'm happy to come back just keep whenever. talking on, on another show. But um, what, what are your thoughts in terms of a bare bottom versus uh, sand? You know, I've um, I've always run sand in my systems except for this new tank. And the reason why I'm running bare bottom now is because it's a peninsula tank. It's six foot long. It's three foot wide. I want it to be an SPS dominant tank. So I want to have that flow all like at the, you know, the back end of the tank. I don't want to have any uh, recirculating pumps on, on any of the, uh, the viewing panels of the tank. So I don't think I could hold sand. So um, I did start the tank with live rock and uh, it cycled within like in a week or, or so. So I think I, the comments that I, I'd seen in the uh, chat here are that um, BRS had been recommending uh, bare bottom, but now they're not. But I, I believe that they're recommending uh, sand if you use um, or bare bottom if you use live rock. So what are your whole thoughts on the terms of the, uh, the live rock versus the dry rock and sand versus no sand? Okay. Um... Nothing is better than real live rock in your system, in my opinion. Real live rock, not man-made, not, you know, the mine stuff we get out of the keys. Um, I mean, I'm guilty of using the Stax rock because I did not have an outlet to get real live rock that was cost-effective and actually worth it to do. So, um I'm using stacks rocks, but I've in the past, I always used live rock um, because I think there's a lot of beneficial things that can come off the live rock, but then I'm going to contradict myself here because after what we mentioned earlier in the, in this about lower pH systems and all the porous areas of live rock being bound up with carbonates, live rock can be your friend and it can be your foe at the same time. Mm. And I'm going to set up um, a system here for uh, – it's a, it's a quarantine-type system that's going to take coral fragments from one farm system to the next farm system. They're going to go into this system. I'm not going to put anything in it except for um, uh, a marine pure block. That's it. One marine pure block. That's going to be the only bacteria – only surface area for bacteria to grow on other than the walls of the tank, the pipes of the, of the plumbing, the – um, um, the racks, everything else that, that's going to be the only outlet for, for bacteria to grow on. And honestly, because corals are not as demanding when it comes down to, well, they're, they're demanding, but they're not going to be as, um, they're not going to pollute the water, say, as for say, as much as what fish are going to, even though having, you have to have fish in a reef system. It's a, it's a given, but I think that with the, the pipes, the surface area, your frag racks, your frag plugs, your coral rock and everything, there's going to be enough surface area for bacteria to grow. And it will also allow you to not have to worry about pH being lower because in some cases you can't get your pH up unless you do crazy stuff like we're doing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you have binding up of your alkalinity, you chase it constantly and spend money on 
alkalinity buffers, just constantly putting it in your aquarium when Kalkwasser will take care of that for you in reality because it's just keeping everything free, but you will still have to dose, but it'll be a heck of a lot less and it'll be a lot more cost effective. So as a reefer that has a lot of, that doesn't have a lot of expendable cash per se, Kalkwasser is the best way to go for taking care of your aquarium. And you won't have to worry about your rock itself, you know, binding up all those carbonates. So I, I, I think live rock is, is very good. Um, sand, I'm a sucker for sand. I love my sand because um, my wife loves her doggone acanthophilias. And with 24 of them in her 120-gallon <laughs> aquarium, if I didn't have sand in there, I wouldn't be able to have all those acanthas. And they would just kind of be rolling around in the current. Um, again, that's porous areas too. So it's, you know, contradicts kind of what I say, but you got to just be able to balance that yeah. all out yeah. when you break it all down. Um, I think it's a matter of personal preference. If you like to look of white sand in your aquarium and you want an LPS tank, you're not going to have this max crazy amount of flow in your aquarium. Then, then go with the sand bottom and, and put your LPSs in there and maybe a couple of SPSs. But if you want an SPS dominated tank, a hundred percent, don't put any sand in that thing. Just you want flow. You don't want the detritus laying on the bottom. You want to have something blowing across the bottom, keeping it clean. Um, and use your any media that you're going to use. Use it in your sump. I mean, there's no reason for the the sand and SPS tank because you want to keep your nutrient levels down. And sometimes the the sand and the pores that will help hold some of those nutrients, for say. And there's a myth on live rock. They say because it's porous and this and that, the water flows through it really slowly and it removes nitrates. In a perfect world, <laughs> but our tanks aren't perfect, and you would never make a perfect world with a tank. Uh, you can try to get it as perfect as you want to, as you can, right. but unless your pH is above the eight point two five to eight point three, that rock's bound up anyhow, and there's a little water flowing through it, and it's not doing you any good for your nitrates. So just get a good protein skimmer, um, bare bottom, the rock, lots of flow with SPS, sand bottom with LPS. That's what I like personally. Yeah. I mean, detritus is, uh, is a big thing in terms of trying to like keep the nutrients in check and, and with the bare bottom, I've definitely found it a lot easier to spot it, to siphon it up. Um, you know, with the sand bed, you know, that I have in my other tank, I, uh, I have a cleanup crew that's doing all the work for me, but, um, you just don't know and you can't get to all the uh, detritus. So if that cleanup crew is not doing the job. Then, um, you know, that could be an issue down the road. I mean, listen, I, I understand the pain of every hobbyist with detritus and with this and with that. We run on a skeleton crew. Imagine two, four, six, eight, ten, twelve, fourteen. Eighteen tanks that are eight by four to twelve by six that you gotta make sure don't have that stuff laying on the bottom. It's a it's a nightmare. I, I the bare bottom makes it so much easier yeah. to take care of and I've devised all kinds of different ways to keep that from settling or settling in one area of the tank only and not over the whole thing. We have our gyres in our, in our main wild coral displays. They're underneath the tank and they're all angled down towards the bottom so that the, and there's eight foot, there's one shooting this way, one shooting this way. And if there's any detritus settling, it settles in one spot and I can go down in there with a siphon hose yeah. and suck it out in yeah. three minutes yeah. where before it was taking all the racks out yeah. <laughs> and pain just in overhauling the whole tank. Yeah. A pain in the rear end and a day's worth of work. Yeah. Yeah. I just put a gyro in, in, um, bottom of one of my frag tanks and it's definitely doing a job in terms of moving, uh, you know, they're bare bottom, my frag tanks, but it's definitely doing <sighs> the job in terms of keeping that try to suspended. But like you said, it's uh, easy to spot it and to siphon it up. I mean, I do pull the rack. Yeah, no, for sure. 
All right, dude. Well, listen, you have been uh, awesome in in terms of uh, thank you. The um, just the uh, the intro. Sure, don't want to keep going for another half hour. <laughs> I'm having fun here. We, we can keep going, folks. If you got more questions, put them in the. It's uh, up to you, bud. Put them in the chat, man. We'll go for a little bit longer here. You know, I mean, why not? Do you uh, do you want to talk any about anything uh, specific there, uh, Chris? Anything that we missed? Um. Oh my gosh, where can I start? I mean, I got so much I could go on and the, on and uh, on what about, about the new farm you guys got uh, going on there. Oh, it's it's going to be epic when it's done. I mean, it's it's three one thousand gallon tanks. One of the tanks is my sump because I, my manager Daniel said to me, he's like, "Why are we putting a sump on this tank?" And I'm like, uh, "We need a sump." And he's like, "All you're going to do is put corals in it anyhow." And I'm like, <laughs> I started laughing because <laughs> all my sumps are literally littered with corals, wall to wall. And um, he goes, why don't we just take the third one and make that the sump? And then when we go to do the second phase expansion, we have a thousand gallons of water to deal with versus a small sump that we're going to have to worry about upgrading down the road. Um, so that's, that's been, a, it was a fun thing. I'm glad he uh, made that point because now I've got a thousand gallon sump that is divided off by a wall of stacks rock where my, my protein skimmer is and my algae scrubber. And, um, my return, my return pumps are back there. All the, all the, um, the lines and the bulkheads. So that was, that was, um, the fun part was getting that all figured out. So how we were going to set that up. And then the other two tanks, we have, uh, we have a dozen coral cares, six over two of the tanks. Um, and then we have uh, Reef Bright LED accents, the XHOs. Um, Tulio was awesome. He actually came down right after we got him and took a you know tour of the farm and got to see everything. Tulio's um, great. Love Tulio. He is. His wife Joy is amazing too. And yes. And she surprised me. That woman surprised me. She was talking coral with me. Like I'm like, hey, she knows what she's talking about. <laughs> and then I found out her little backstory about what she used to do, and I was like, awesome, you know. And then she's just like looking around, and she's like. I'm, I'm, I'm amazed at what I see here. She's like, I imported for years and she's like, you have a lot of amazing corals in your place. And you know, that was good to hear from a veteran in the industry saying that we're doing something right. You know, my supply line is amazing. Um, but on, on you know, back to the other, the, the new farm, we are racks, basically holding racks away from putting corals in it. It is ready to go. It's been running the saltwater been in it since uh, the second week of January it's been cycled for like five weeks. Um, is this a separate facility? It, no, it's in the same facility. Actually, when we um, when COVID hit, we stopped selling fish. So we had um, two 32-foot fish runs that were double-sided, oh, okay. three tiers tall yeah. for, for fish. They've been imports. repurposed. And they've been repurposed. Um, and I should have done that a long time ago because um, I love corals. I love my fish, but something about corals uh you know the fact that i don't get as much heartache with corals per se fish give me a lot of heartache i mean uh i can't deal with death very well and to see the fish death that i saw in the eight years i imported fish makes me sick to my stomach to be honest with you and um we tried to change the narrative on how you do fish and how you import fish and i don't think it can be done i think it the way it is done by all the other people is the way it should be done and it's just not the way i want to do it and i decided it was ready to get rid of fish we're throwing more corals in so that i can really smile every day instead of be depressed when i see a dead fish <laughs> um 
but uh, we're fixing to be able to put um, in each one of those tanks. If we set them up the way we're, the way I want them set up, there should be almost 30,000 frags in each of those three tanks. So how much are you going to increase your capacity with those, um, with the new system, the new form? With the first phase, it'll double the capacity of wow. the farm. Wow, man. With the second phase, it'll triple the capacity of the farm. Jeez. And with the third phase, it'll more than quadruple the capacity of the farm. That system will end up being over 10,000 gallons when I'm done with it. I've already got two three-ton chillers on it and a, and another three-ton waiting if I need to install it on it. Um, and the reason why we went with the three-ton chillers multiples is because if one goes – I still have two to back me up. And if I have one big chiller and it goes, then I'm done, you know, and I always try to do everything in twos or more return pumps. There's two, um, you know, there's, there's always multiples of everything because if one fails, I'm not going to destroy my entire, honestly, when I, I think about it this way, my life's work, 13, 14 years of this, it's almost my life's work. When I break it down of all the hard work I put into learning about corals, I'm not an expert in any way, shape or form. People want to call me one. Thank you. I, I'm flattered by that. I'm not an expert. I'm learning all the time. Um, I can give you what I've learned. And if you take it, you know, and use it and it works for you, that makes me feel good because we're only keeping animals alive longer. And, you know, this is all about the animals for me. Um, you know, it was just a harebrained idea that popped up and, um, you know, just so happened that, you know, my wife supported me hundred percent. God bless her. Um, you know, in the beginning it was, it was, kind of it wasn't a money pit but it wasn't a money maker yeah you know and yeah. i'm not really that employable um <laughs> I, I i i proclaim myself not employable and it's because every job i've ever had i was miserable at and it was because i i don't know i kind of like to be in kind of control of how things are being done and when ideas that i have don't get utilized and i think they'd be good and then down the road they get utilized and i don't get any credit for it that would just irritate me so now i am the control <laughs> so if i mess it up it's all on me and um you know the the this business has helped me grow as a human and um helped me grow in so many different ways and learn so many different things and i'm still learning and honestly i don't want to ever stop doing what i'm doing you know i it, it it scares me to death that they're gonna you know, ban importation of corals or ban it from this place. We're not going to be able to get it anymore. And all I have is what I have at the farm because without being able to import, I'm not going to be able to get that diversity up and I'm not going to be able to keep my excitement level up. And that's the, the passion I have for what I do. Um, I think it comes across in, in how I, how I, you know, talk about. What oh I yeah. Do. I mean, it is, it is definitely uh, evident, Chris, in terms of the passion that you have for, um, you know, your business and, and the hobby and the animals, it's uh, it's clear cut for sure. I just want everybody to be able to keep these animals healthy and happy. And I, I hate to see That's a great mission. things being done. Well, I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot of ways to do things. And I used to do everything the way most people do them. And I've tweaked a lot of those things and I think it's better. Um, but that's a matter of people to actually adopt the the method and say it's better. Um, you know, I grew up with uh, not a whole lot. My mom and dad worked their asses off every day of their life to work paycheck to paycheck. I didn't get a lot of extras. I got if I had lawn mowing money, that's how I got my African cichlids. You know, I got how I got my discus. I saved my lawn mowing money up. You know, I learned the value of a dollar very early in life. Um, and my mom and dad tried to you know make sure that they they that we had everything we could have. And 
because of the fact that I learned how to do things with nothing and make the best of it, I think that's why I try to make things better, but not, I don't know how to say it. <laughs> There's things that are very expensive and they work. I try to make them cheaper and work better. Right. And that's what my goal is, is for that average Joe that's out there that has a $60,000, a year job, lives and has a house, has a wife, has all these bills. Wants that reef aquarium for his kid, but can't afford a $500 booger to put in his aquarium. Can't afford a $100 booger to put in his aquarium. Can't even afford anything more than a nano cube, for God's yeah. sake. You know, this aquarium industry has gotten to be, and I understand it. I'm not against it, but it's gotten to be so far out of reach for the average Joe. I'm afraid, and it scares me to death that it's going to slowly die because you're not going to get newbies into it. You're going to get people that have money that can do it, but you're not going to get that that person that doesn't have all that extra money in, that's what I want to do. I mean, my goal for ACI is to put corals affordable that are high end. The craziest, most expensive corals that were ever on the market that people spend a thousand dollars a frag on. I want them to go to the local fish store and buy a bigger frag and spend twenty nine ninety nine on it. Is what I want. Yeah. And if I have my way with the way the farm grows, that reality may yeah. come true. And it's going to be aquaculture at that point too. It's not going to be just chop shop. It's going to be a really farmed coral that we put time, love and effort into making happen. Yeah. And I think, I think that I can, I, should, I think we can leave it a go with that. I mean, I kind of got a point across that I was trying to figure out how to get in there and you know, that's what we're all about. You know, I don't, I don't, think it's fair that some people can't even afford this because i think everybody should be able to afford this yeah should we uh, get into talking about the name game or maybe just leave that for uh for the next time you don't want me to get into the name <laughs> game with that the next time jake and i have a big field day with that all the time uh oh my gosh the name game oh, i gotta uh, it gets on my nerves. i gotta thank um veggie t-a-d-t for the awesome super chat got a um, i don't know what that is but it's waving a number one flag that is awesome and uh toast 707 thank you for the uh for the super chat it says love the streams keith the longer the better <laughs> <laughs> well i thank everybody for joining it was uh it was fun um i again we probably could go for another two and a half hours but um uh, it is a Let's save it for another time. Let's definitely do this again. Keith. Oh, absolutely, dude. I uh, I thoroughly enjoyed this, and um, I guess uh, my last question to you is: Do you have any final thoughts, or should we just uh, table it to the next show? My biggest bit of advice that I can ever give anybody in this industry is: You work hard for your money. You put it into your aquarium. What you have that you can spend on it. Do yourself a huge favor. Don't take advice from a forum mm. that's got 50 people in there giving yeah. you advice. Don't take advice from a person you trust. Take advice from one or two people that have kind of the same ways of doing things. Don't mix and match a whole bunch of stuff together because you're in for a recipe for disaster. Because all 50 of those people that are giving you an idea might have a different way of doing the exact same thing. But when you mix all those things together, it could be a complete disaster for the beautiful animals that you put your hard-earned money into putting into that aquarium. And then your heartache is going to be worse off. And you're basically starting over if you have a crash because of something that you didn't just listen to one person and their method. I don't care if you listen to my method. I don't care if you listen to BRS's method. Anybody else's method. Just stick with that person. Listen to them. Do their method. Do it well. But find, don't find stray away from it. If you do – exactly. You know – 
I help people all the time. I got a guy in the UK that I've been working with for the last two and a half months. And he's like, Chris, he's like, I can't believe I just found out about you. And I'm like, well, I'm not really popular. <laughs> he's like, you're well known over here. People talk about ACI. And I'm like, great. I think it's awesome. It means people are listening to what I do and how we do it. And again, I'm not an expert, but I know what, that what we do and how we do it, it works and it works well. If you want that method, very near future, that method will be published and you'll be able to read about it and adopt it and do it exactly you know, the way we do things and it'll save you money and it'll be basically um, just simplifying you know, how we reef um, because sometimes I think that we've gotten way too complicated on something that is way simpler. <laughs> That's yeah. my opinion. Yeah. I mean, the old guys had it right, Cockrosser. I completely agree. That's great advice. So we're getting a lot of calls for, I think the next time you're coming on, we, we got to get you uh, and Jake on at the same time here. That, uh, that would be an interesting, uh, that would oh, be an be interesting uh, show. <laughs> Jake, uh, Jake also is mentioning that his next, uh, at reef, uh, the, the reef therapy show, which are great shows, by the way, is all about the, uh, the reef aquarium naming, um, game. So, uh, yeah, Jake, you gotta do, you gotta do those live, oh. man. Those would be a uh, great live. S Jake and I, he was talking about doing one live sometime. Um, I don't know if we get into trouble. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> I consider that. <laughs> All right, man. So uh, we're going to wrap it up. And listen, I got to thank you so much, Chris, again, for uh, for being a guest tonight. Looking forward to having you on again um, at uh, some point soon on, on another show. So, yeah, my, uh, my next live stream is going to be Thursday. April 1st at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And I'm going to have a very special guest on. Remember... Um, Chris, that uh, store Reefer Madness, that uh, defunct uh, store I Reefer do. Madness. Well, I've got a very special guest. Actually, a former employee of that store is going to be on the show on uh, on Thursday, April 1st. What's his name? I'm not going to divulge that at this point in time. Okay. It's, it's going to be, it's gonna be <laughs> no a surprise. Problem. <laughs> but, no problem. I, I, know, I, I know of some people that I yeah, think it might be. So uh, <laughs> it's going to be an awesome show. So anyway, until then, everybody, uh, thanks again for tuning in. Really, really appreciate it. Love the, uh, love the, uh, the interaction, the dialogue. And thank you so much for the, uh, for the super chat. And, and please spread the word about the show. It, uh, it is a lot of fun, really enjoying it. But anyway, until the next time, be safe, be well, and uh, later. Thanks, guys. Take care.